Bart's crazy. Bart's not a shoplifter. He's just a little boy. Oh, sure. Now he's just a little boy stealing little toys. But someday he'll be a grown man stealing stadiums and uh, quarries. My son may not be perfect, but I know in my heart he's not a shoplifter. Fine, play the tape. Then everyone can see you've got the wrong boy. Wait! Mom, I don't want you to see this. I did it. Welcome to our You My Mother, the podcast that looks at mothers and parents in media for a glimpse into how mother characters inform and sometimes betray the expectation of what it means to be a mother and how we look at mothers in the world. This podcast is a proud part of the Glitterjaw Queer Podcast Collective. If you're looking for other queer media podcasts, check out the full roster of Glitterjaw shows at glitterjaw.com. I'm your host, David Arnold, and this episode, we're talking about Marge Simpson from The Simpsons. For the past 34 years, we've had a place in our hearts and our homes for Marge, so I couldn't do justice to a discussion of her impact without a guest. And this episode, I'm absolutely tickled to be bringing on my Gimmicks Podcast co-host, co-founder of the Glitterjaw Queer Podcast Collective, and Marge aficionado, Derek B. Gale. Derek, thank you so much for coming on. Of course, I'm glad that my guest is uh, my guest appearance is tickling you. That's a such a great, really? uh, great uh, verb to have for this uh, situation. Is it wait? Well, is it a verb in that such? I am tickled. Uh, Jared, no, I guess that's Jaren. Yeah, that's what it would be. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Derek. We, you and I, are both really big Marge heads. I think that we celebrated mm-hmm. that early in our friendship, uh, and we're going to be spending some time talking about this uh, blue haired absolute vixen but before i get started (laughs) with that i want to talk a little bit about your history with podcasts because folks have probably heard you doing other things how did you get started podcasting um uh i already was in the realm of like media criticism and like quote-unquote content creation um hate that phrase so much but like content creation essentially already um i I, you know i i had been writing like tv reviews and stuff for years, um, you know, off and on in places. And I think right before I'd started doing podcasting, I've been doing video. I did some video essays on YouTube. So like I, and they were also like media criticism type things. Yeah. So like it was already my scope. And I think both of those things are a level of work that I think is sort of different than what podcasting is. And I think I sort of tried out podcasting by guest spotting on a couple of podcasts and realized like, Oh, I feel like I can better communicate what I'm doing like through this, if I want to do it on a regular basis, then trying to churn out tons of articles and like writing, you know, really complicated video essays and editing those together. Like podcasting is a lot of work too, but you know, it's a different, I think you can get more out of out, out there, (laughs) like literally do more, more regularly. Um, And it kind of became the thing that I could do very regularly and still feel like I could get my, myself and my thoughts and feelings and perspectives uh, out there and try to, 
you know, communicate new things and connect with new people in, in different ways. I was able to do that more with podcasting than any other type of stuff that I'd done prior. Um, and then, so yeah, basically I caught the bug and then I never, uh, got rid of it. And now here we are. <laughs> that, is, that is true. In fact, uh, listeners should know that I keep a spray bottle handy just in case Derek ever says <laughs> that he has another idea for a podcast, but <laughs> were, you, were you, were you a fan of podcasts before you got started recording them? Do you have any yeah. like big favorites that are still in your rotation? Oh, um, I think that I'm trying to think of the early, a lot of the, maybe not the, the earliest, early stuff. Cause just cause my tastes have changed, but I think one of the ones that I've listened to probably the longest, especially in terms of like media podcasts, uh, would be like the talking Simpsons network. Yeah, um, they're, oh. they're, they, and they're definitely influential on everything that I've done in terms of like how, uh, they approach everything from a sense of like really deep research. And it's sort of like, if you're going to come on and talk about a subject, even if you aren't necessarily an expert on it, you want to do your due diligence and make sure you come in with enough prep so that you are bringing something and not just like talking out of your ass the whole time. Right. Um, and, and that's always been an approach that I've taken a lot. I listened to, um, I started listening to them a little more after these aren't like my my earliest podcast, but another really influential one. That's my favorite one is uh, the black, uh, the blank check podcast, blank check with Griffin and David. Yeah. That's probably like my number one favorite podcast of all time. Um, And again, I didn't start listening to them until I think around like maybe 20, well, I guess like 2018, 2019. So actually it has been a lot longer than I thought it was, but, um, but they're also like very influential on just like, approaching media with like from a sense of like love for the medium and for the industry um and you know uh, not just doing it just for the sake of doing bits but being able to do bits while talking intelligently about things uh if that makes sense yeah i love that i love that so much and uh, i know that you've talked uh, very publicly and openly about glitter jaw where it came from and, and i would reference people to go back to the walloping web snappers q a that you and doug did uh when that started but how is how's glitter jaw going now how do you feel like the the collective is is serving the folks who are part of it and the community who's looking for queer media podcasts yeah, I I think that we definitely have plenty of room to grow and do more cool stuff, but right now it's just been nice to have a have a really particular community to be a part of. Like I feel like it was one of those things where it's sort of like the community kind of like already sort of existed because we were all like friends and had guested on each other's shows anyway. Um and this just kind of made it more official yeah. and and gave us some branding and another more avenues to like promote stuff but i think it's really fun is that it's a it's a great way to it's it's a great like bonding thing for one but also a great way to like kind of shoot ideas out at each other and i think it's really inspired a lot of really cool ideas like some stuff that you know may or may not come to pass but just i definitely have seen all of us seem more engaged and inspired to throw out different ideas and think a little bit outside the box. And there are some like shows that are coming in the future or that are like being talked about that are like different combinations of podcasters that haven't really worked together very much within Glitterjaw um, or maybe like weirder ideas for things that we haven't really ever tried before. So I, you know, all that stuff, I don't really know exactly what will end up coming out of it, but just the fact that those conversations are happening when they weren't happening before, because we were all, just kind of a you know doing our own thing. That's what's really exciting to me. So um, I I I I feel like come next year you're going to be seeing a lot of cool and hopefully like unique things coming out of the collective. Um, some stuff that 
maybe I don't even know about yet, which is exciting. Oh, so that's great. That's great. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to the thesis that you sort of presented around why you even got into podcasting to begin with, because it is about community and it's about being able to share an experience with other creatives and with people who listen to these, to these shows that are a part of the collective. I think that's so cool. And so awesome, Derek. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think so too. <laughs> well, it's great that we both mentioned, or I gave a quick nod to it while Derek was, was sharing, but I also was a huge fan of talking Simpsons and the, the many, many, many podcasts that they produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really fitting that we both have that as part of our faves, because today we're talking about the Simpsons and particularly Marge Simpson herself. So it's unlikely that anyone listening to this isn't aware of The Simpsons because it's a cultural tentpole that has been around and sort of uh, where a lot of media has referenced and been referenced from in our world. But for a high-level overview, The Simpsons is a long-running animated sitcom satirizing the American family and their everyday life with Father Homer, Mother Marge, children Bart, Lisa, and infant Maggie, and hundreds of other characters in the fictional Springfield. The Simpsons is the longest-running scripted primetime television series with over 750 episodes to date. And no end in sight. Oh, jeez. Derek, <laughs> Derek, tell us a little bit about your history with The Simpsons. Where did you get started with all this? Oh, my God. I mean, I was born the year the show premiered. So I'm the same age as the show. It, it's actually helpful because I can often just be like, how old am I? Well, what season is The Simpsons in? And then figure it out from there. So I kind of just was, I grew up with it. And luckily, my both of my parents were like really into the Fox network, which was still a very new network at the time. Yeah. Um. So like they were, you know, they were, they were early, early adopters of all like the edgy Fox programming and loved all the like comedies that had like, you know, deeply racist and homophobic jokes and everything in there. Um. Of course, but a lot of good content came out of early Fox. Right. So like they like married with children and stuff. And I think that they were really attracted to a lot of like, um, the fox fox's sort of um like with married with children and the simpsons both would sort of approach traditional sitcom stuff but from like okay we're not going to deal with like you know rich people bullshit like higher class bullshit we're going to deal with people who don't have money who are a little bit raunchier who make like stupid jokes and who like get involved with like you know dumb like real world stuff but in you know absurd cartoony ways that don't take itself very, doesn't take itself very seriously, and I think that was very appealing to them because it's sort of like it's reflecting our life, but like unlike something like Roseanne, which I also love, but like Roseanne did sort of treat the the sort of lower class issues with a lot of seriousness, mm. whereas I do think that like Mary with Children and The Simpsons especially, it's like it's not that like it's 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 they're mining it for like you're laughing with them and at them at the same yeah. time, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and so yeah so i always used to joke that it was almost kind of a rite of passage in my family to like be introduced to the simpsons because i like they were already watching it regularly so i was sat down with them when they would watch it and then once you know once it hit syndication and we'd be running you know six o'clock every every weekday we would have the simpsons on on the TV in the kitchen while we were eating dinner together. Like we were that family. Oh, I love um, we that. did. Yeah. We were, we were not a family that talked to each other at dinner. We were a family that watched television together with dinner. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's just like, I've always been part of my life. And I do think that there's like an arc of like 
just it, living with it as a as just this sort of institution in your life that's like ingrained in your head and then maybe as you get older then retroactively looking back at it as like a television series and a piece of art that in ways in ways that almost feel different you know um like i definitely revisited it i think you know in high school or something and was like oh this isn't like i remember all these episodes because i have them memorized from having watched them as a kid but now i can actually approach them from like why is this funny and what are the references that i laughed at because they were saying words that sounded funny that i now actually understand and like get and and can actually find funny because they are well-written jokes rather than just like funny words that someone's saying you know Right. And there are so many references in The Simpsons. This is a very smartly written show. It's a very dense joke show. But you you have lines that work for children who have no idea what they mean and work for adults who don't know what they mean and adults who also went to Harvard. I think that's... Yeah, absolutely. That's the fun thing about it. Like, for example, at one point in time, uh, Lisa says something and Bart says, oh, yes, I'm familiar with the works of Pablo Neruda. Yeah. You know, it wasn't until after college that I was like, oh, I should look up who the fuck Pablo Neruda is. And yeah. I read some of these poems and I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. But it's sort of like, and it, that's one of those things where it's like, if you don't know who Pablo Neruda is, it's still funny because you can tell that Bart is referencing something hyper-specific that he shouldn't know. And that itself is funny enough. Or like the runner of, of Homer knowing like, just reverencing Supreme court justices and like somehow having deep knowledge about it. Like, I don't even understand what he's referencing, but the fact that he is referencing it all is what's really funny about it. So yeah, it works on multiple levels. And there's also so many things that I only ever know or did research on or learned what it was because I heard about it on the Simpsons first or saw a parody on the Simpsons first and wanted to know what the original thing that (laughs) actually was, you know? Well, the series all started uh, as a set of crude drawings created by cartoonist Matt Groening. Groening had been invited to create an animated version of his characters from the Life is Hell cartoons, but Groening would have had to relinquish his publication rights and instead pitched a show uh, or pitched uh, some shorts with this dysfunctional family to appear as part of the Tracy Ullman show. The shorts were animated domestically by Klasky Chupo, who merely retraced Groening's quick quickly drawn cartoons and the colorist had to choose to make the characters their unique yellow color specifically because bart lisa and maggie had no hairlines they felt like it would look a lot better in yellow than it would in flesh tone graining was supportive specifically delighted by marge's design as a yellow human with shockingly blue hair great Derek, did you did you have any experience with these tracy ullman show shorts as a, probably not younger in your life right because these came out prior to your cognitive memory but yeah and they didn't really i don't and i don't feel like they re-ran very much because especially like once the one and once the simpsons aired like that kind of those shorts got really buried and they still are weird about releasing them so i think uh, my experience like a lot of other people especially my age was like through the 130th episode spectacular yeah they showed those you know and that was the ones i've seen i think i've seen some other ones as well but like you know you can't find them in good quality because they really don't want to release them. So, you know, and it's like, it's for me, those things are a fascinating piece of history. I don't really find them particularly funny. Like they're the type, I think, I think, I think Matt Groening has a type of humor that I think works for me in certain capacities and in certain ways, but there's other aspects of his humor that I just, some sort of like, I'm not mad about it, but like, it really does nothing for me, you know? Um, 
So, and, and then it just kind of falls in that category. Like, cool that this exists and I appreciate seeing it, but I don't really, I find them more just kind of weird and interesting than like funny and entertaining, you know? Yeah. I think, I think they probably work a little bit better if you, if you think about them in the context of being between a lot of other yes. comedies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Other on there a little, I mean, they work perfect for what that is. It's like, yeah. it's like a pre-shot thing for SNL and you just yeah. put it between skits. Yeah. Yeah. So talking about graining, did you ever mess with Life is Hell? Uh, or yeah, did you ever mess with this? Did you ever read any of these cartoons? Is it Life is Hell or Life in Hell, actually? Life, I yeah, I know. I'm also being like, really? Mm-hmm. It's Life in Hell. Life in Hell. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> I was like, this doesn't seem, I, as you saw, I like, struggled to get that out. I was like, that doesn't sound yeah, right. Yeah, it was like, something about that doesn't sound right. Um, no, not really. I, you know, I'm familiar with it, like anybody else is just from knowing it. But I, I've, I've seen, I've seen some of the comics that are like, I think probably the best of the best. I'm, I am blanking on what those are, but I've definitely seen some that are like, this is very relevant to today still, but it's not something that I've like really deeply pursued or anything. I don't have a book of life in hell comics or anything like that. So, so we did, we had the big really? hell and uh, it was, it was one of my favorite comics to read. They were wonderful because they were the sort of thing you want to read when you're sort of a shitty little preteen. Oh, sure. Yeah. You, you were sort of against the machine. There was a lot of Bart energy that yeah. was already there in the comics. And he did some pretty funny stuff. Like he would often do whole page panels that were just the nine worst teachers you could have, or the nine types of spouses that you'd have. And he'd always use this nine by nine grid to tell these stories. <laughs> I also like, and I hope you have seen some of these, Akbar and Jeff, which before I even really had a concept and understanding of what these characters were and where I would later fall on the queer spectrum, were like heroes in this Yeah, world. I have seen some of Akbar and Jeff. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> find the Akbar for your Jeff, everyone. <laughs> well, the success of the shorts led to the creation of a half-hour series, which premiered December 17th, 1989, with Sis- Simpsons roasting on an open fire. Early seasons were grounded with the family and incredibly emotionally resonant, often attributed to the particular nuance of producing producer Sam Simon. Relevant to what we're discussing today is Simon's depth of care for the characterization of Marge as a mother, but Simon was also responsible for building out a lot of the Springfield community and some of the most iconic moments in early Simpsons, including the adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven during the first Treehouse of Horror episode. So Derek, I know that you saw these at the dinner table. You saw them in reruns. Mm -hmm. What's your memory or adult experience like with the first few seasons of The Simpsons? sense yeah i think um i like i i think season two is better than i think people often give it credit for like when people get asked like what season should i start with and a lot of people start with season three which i do think that it like becomes more of the show the modern version of it in season three sure. but, like season two has a, just a ton of really great stuff in it um and i think season one it's like season one is interesting because like it's it is like kind of a fundamentally different show in so many ways like even right down to the score but uh there's still like i i I always feel weird of like writing it off in the way that people do because even though it's fundamentally different there's still so many great gems in there and i think that it builds a foundation for what the show would like expand on later you know so like I understand why, you know, if you've literally never watched the show before, I guess maybe don't start with season one, but Uh I do think you should eventually go back to it because I do think that they're worth watching. Um, But, you know, I mean, since I, since I was so, I don't know, like it was, it was weird growing up because I feel like I, 
saw everything kind of i wasn't watching them in succession i was seeing things kind of all at once because it was rerun so much so like but even then i think you can even as a small child you can tell the very distinct differences between season one homer and like season four and five homer um and so i could definitely would be able to tell when one was earlier but and and maybe had more love for like the later seasons than the first couple but i don't have any like i don't have a strong antipathy for the towards them either like i you know it was still it's still all simpsons to me so yeah yeah Yeah. these were probably most etched in my mind because these were the ones that we did have on vhs Mm -hmm. tape and would watch when anything was not available to us so we would just pop a pop an old tape of the simpsons on and just enjoy it with with so much happiness in our lives Uh, a sin now and we'll talk more about your twitch channel in a second but we we got really good at pausing the commercials correctly and getting them out which at the time was to be like high art oh yeah um we lost all these like terrible terrible but awesome uh uh, commercials that just don't exist anymore yeah no i mean that was i mean i have i have a bunch of tapes that are like that too still and it's just or stuff where like i had them at once and then like had two vcrs and actually edited the tape by like pausing it and like re-recording which means that the tapes i have now are like a copy of a copy that not only are they missing the commercial but the quality is also like dog shit because they're copied from another tape so like it, but but at the time it was sort of like it was like I'm creating my own yeah. my own collectible set like this is this is the Derek Gale collection of of, the, of this show right now so yeah can't imagine that now now it's like God I regret doing that completely <laughs> like awful awful decision you know it's it's funny because you if you could go back and and tell young Derek something you'd be like you know what would be really great for your future is if you just had a clean vhs copy of all commercials it would do so well right now (laughs) exactly (laughs) well we've sort of talked around this but starting in 1990 and reaching full strength in season three the world became held in an unbreakable grip of bart mania as the show hit its stride Because of his popularity in particular, Bart was often the most promoted member of the Simpsons family in advertisements of the show, even for episodes in which he was not involved with the main plot. We would take the one bit Bart had and use that in all of the promos. Bart was often cited as a bad influence with public figures who used Bart as part of their classic classist criticism of families like the Simpsons and those who watched them. I love I love the inclusion of like the classist criticism because oh. that is exactly what it was. Yeah. And they, they <laughs> this was done to Roseanne. Like I don't want to just call out one thing. This was done to Roseanne too. Yeah. Uh, and it was done. It was it was done with Mary and Charlie. That probably was the most deserved place. But oh sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> this was the criticism, especially with early Simpsons, was about who they were and how normal and disgusting normality was with these people, not not criticism of the Simpsons Simpsons season 15 on where they yeah. are like randomly going to Japan or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also just so funny when you revisit the the times when they were citing the show as being such a bad influence because it's sort of like this, especially compared to like cartoons now, like Family Guy and South Park and stuff that would come yes. later. Like this, it's so wholesome. Like early Simpsons is so wholesome. But Helly and Bart is still just like, I mean, they make fun. They they point out on the show later, but it's just like he's like got a slingshot and riding a skateboard and spray paint some things. Like he's just like a Dennis. He's literally Dennis the Menace, and that's what you think is going to destroy the minds of children. Like are you like come on? 
Whereas there's there's so much heart that it's almost schmaltzy at yeah. times in the show that's talking about family being together and trusting each other, the kind of values that you'd probably actually yeah. want to espouse. Yeah. I mean, and it's like, you know, obviously, and obviously there's a lot of like sarcasm within that as well. And they would make fun of those values at the same time. But like at the end of the day, it was more, it really was more regular sitcom than than people were treating it like it was. It was literally complaints are coming people who just literally, literally weren't watching the show. And then like ironically, I think as the show goes along and becomes wackier and denser, like it, it does kind of become a little more of like the the sort of like you know ridiculous show that they that they thought it was at the time after right. people stop making those criticisms and aren't paying attention to it in that way anymore. Um yeah, it's just it's 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 very silly. I will say though, like I do think that the show did still teach a sense of like anti anti-authoritarianism in a way like uh, and really but it would do it in ways that were just like subtle and were it really the things that i think the the critics really noticed like these people who were criticizing it really noticing it like i think it was just sort of like teaching you like actually sometimes adults are really stupid and wrong cops are just terrible at their jobs yeah. sometimes your teachers hate being your teachers and, and are miserable yeah. and don't know what they're doing sometimes the institutions are actively bad and trying to harm you your employer probably would rather be either you be dead uh but the only reason they keep you around is because they help you make a profit and as soon as you stop doing that then you mean You're nothing out. to them like all of that stuff i think extremely good lessons that the simpsons implanted in me as a child um that's the stuff that uh that like I guess was a bad influence on me, but for the better, you know, <laughs> you're actually talking about a communist awakening here. Uh, Derek. Truly I think that the status quo might be, might have a lot to say. About. Truly, truly. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think a lot of the, the, the Bart anti-authoritative uh, lens actually came from merchandising. I think that there yeah, was sure. a tremendous Bart as something you sell figure versus yeah. Bart that you actually see in the show. And I was curious, like, so this obviously had an impact on your adulthood, but were you like a little Bart in school or were you a little bit more like Lisa or like me, like a Bobby who just had no idea what was going on in your life from King of the Hill? Oh God. Yeah. No, I wasn't a Bart at all. I was a little, I mean, I was a little, I was a little goody two shoes as a kid. Um, I, I, I probably more like Lisa in like, annoying people by like trying to be too good and virtuous or whatever and self-righteous about stuff um i had a little bit of bart by high school i think but i think it just sort of naturally comes from like wanting to be a little rebellious but even sure. at, even at that it still was like i wasn't really doing anything that bad like really, i will like, rebel between the hours of 7 and 9 p.m Thank yeah you. yeah right right the worst thing i did was like there was a a this is so stupid too. It's like the worst thing I did really, it doesn't even make any sense. There was like um a small locker door that had already been like busted and broken anyway that it needed to get repaired and was basically off its hinges. I just like, so I just like ripped it off the rest of the way and just took it, but it was going to be like trashed anyway. So like, it wasn't really anything. My mom still got really upset with me about it when she found it in the trunk of my car. Wow. Um, but that was like my, you know, the worst, most rebellious thing I did. That was my stealing a bone storm that I did. So to answer your question, no, I was not a Bart whatsoever. <laughs> I love that. You actually are almost, you're almost riding into Melhouse territory for being honest, Eric. Truly, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean that with, I truly mean that with all the love in my heart. Like everything yeah. is Melhouse. I do think probably was more of a Millhouse than anything else. <laughs> I think about it. I think it's a really good 
really good comparison. That's great. Well, <laughs> we'll be talking a little bit more about the centraling that Bart did to the show later on, especially as it comes to Marge and who got to write for Marge and why. But one of the consequences of Bartmania and the show's explosive success was translating the show and its characters into multiple mediums. And there's a couple of these that are relevant to our discussion today that I'd like to dig into deeper. The first of which is talking about the many video game franchises that The Simpsons dipped its toe into. So while Bart was in every single one of these, many of them were quite awful. And to <laughs> me, the dividing line of a good Simpsons game and a bad Simpsons game is is can you play as other characters? And most specifically, can you play as Marge? Uh, and mm. so when you think about these other games, that includes the classic quarter-eating arcade cabinet featuring each family member having a unique weapon. For Marge, it was the vacuum cleaner. We love a lean into a stereotype oh, yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, and the 2007 The Simpsons game, which was released for then modern consoles, which uh, had a controllable Marge use a megaphone to direct an unruly mob to build or complete tasks Pikmin style for her. That's uh, that's uh, the one where the sound clip of her yelling, where's my bitches comes yes. from. It's one of my favorites. Yes, uh, it's and Marge is sadly very limitedly in it, but she's sure. great every moment you get to spend with her. And then both driving games, Simpsons Road Rage and Simpsons Hit and Run. Road Rage was the Crazy Taxi ripoff, as we'll all recall. Hit and Run was a little bit more GTA style, allowed a playable Marge to drive vehicles and interact with the world, usually in her massive Canyonero SUV. So, Derek, I know you haven't messed around with Road Rage because we've actually talked about this, but yeah. have you with any of these other video games? Well, the arcade, the arcade game, obviously, because I mean, who hasn't played that? Um, one thing that I'll challenge your theory. Uh, is Simpsons Wrestling? I did play a lot of that. That game Marge, you can play as multiple characters. You can wrestler in that. Yeah, yeah, you can hit things, but that and that's a bad game. I played the hell out of it. I played it a lot because it was, <laughs> but I think it was also like the only Simpsons game that was on PlayStation One. So like, that's if you fair. got it, that's the only one you can play. Um, and there, there are things that were fun. I remember being kind of funny about it, but yeah, as a game overall, it's like dog shit, awful. Um, so that challenges your theory, and that is it one does. of my experiences it with it. it does. Um. Those are really the two I feel like that I had the most experience with, though. I haven't played a really? lot of. I guess I, I don't. I don't remember if I. I feel like I maybe at one point played some of like the Bart solo games, like you know, versus the Space Mutants or whatever. But like that, none of them are very good. So like I don't. Yeah. If I played any of them, I probably played it at a friend's house and hated it and never touched it again. So <laughs> yeah, I uh, I have permanently limited my dexterity by playing the uh, Game Boy uh, game which was, I think, um, Camp Nightmare, maybe? I should have looked this up. I think it's Bart's Nightmare, right? I think that's what it's Bart's, called. Bart's Nightmare was for the Super Nintendo, and then oh, there was okay. where they went to camp like Camp Krusty. Oh! It was unwinnable. It was just programmed to shit. It had controller scenarios, uh, in very excessively difficult, not fun to play. And uh, I was playing it during road trips to and from uh, <laughs> Uh, different places in the state of Michigan. And so I was also playing by like street lamp as the car drove under it on that. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely a bad game. Yeah. 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 I think it's hard to do a Simpsons game because it's not a very, I mean, well, I guess to a certain point, I feel like, I feel like you're right though, that it's sort of like, there is a big enough cast of characters that if you can play as other characters, characters there's enough wackiness there i do think it's hard to do a game with just the simpsons family yeah. as playable characters because like i don't know like how 
they're not built to be video game characters. So like how much can they really do, you know? Right. Right. Uh, yeah. I would say I loved Road Rage, but I was also playing it one summer with a guy I was dating and it's pretty mm -hmm. much all we did together. Uh, shout out Doug, not, uh, not Glitterjaw Doug. And uh, it, it was great. We loved it. We had fun doing it. We took turns doing it. Uh, we, we like memorized levels. It was fun. And it was mostly just to hear character dialogue. The gameplay was fairly simple. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what I, I, I did play a little bit of the tapped out mobile game when it first came out. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and then of course it became very clear that it's sort of like, Oh, this is just one of those games you just will sink money into and, and really get nothing out of it. So I, I didn't play it for very long, but like that, the whole appeal of that game really is just sort of like you play it to unlock funny things that characters said to make you yep. remember lines and remember like one, you know, random characters from the show. Like that's the whole thing. And it's like, I don't like it, but I get why that would be. <laughs> a popular thing because like that's what the simpsons is good for you know i think the best thing i could say about tapped out is that it helped me survive uh family christmases because then i'm sure i could just i could just sort of meld into the couch and just slowly play tapped out that makes sense. not have to worry about anything else yeah that that makes sense <laughs> very appropriate for today's conversation about marge and christmas yeah. but before we move on to that there's one last large media set piece that i want to talk about and that's the simpsons movie making a feature-length movie and making it high quality was always very important to the show's creative team and we get a lot of fun moments in the movie in particular i'd like to call attention to the 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 movie that marge records when she's very upset for homer and she leaves which was deeply emotional it still impacts me to this day and required Kavner to record hundreds of times in order to get it picture perfect right. And it also features one of my favorite March moments because uh, just like the video game, I love when March swears because it's something yeah. you're not expecting to hear. Yeah. So Bart and Homer are have a have a bomb that they're trying to get out of the town. They're riding a motorcycle together. They're having a heart to heart. And it is punctured at the end by Marge shouting, somebody throw the goddamn bomb. And it's so weird to hear Marge swear in that moment. That's very schmaltzy and very caring. Yeah. And just from a character we don't see. So I was curious, first of all, have you seen the Simpsons movie. Yeah, I've seen the Simpsons oh, movie, seen it. David. And what did you say? <laughs> this mega blockbuster that came out uh, from a franchise that I knew that you loved. Yeah, that was a little insulting. Uh, well, what did you think of it then? Uh, I liked it at the time. Um, I do think... A rewatch doesn't doesn't do this. It does. Well, <laughs> I, and I think the, you know, I think at the time, like, I know you're, you're, your next question is really like about the sort of timeline of the, the arc of the Simpsons is perceived as, you know, relevant or whatever. I do yeah. think that it, it had fallen out of rele relevancy before the movie came out. Cause that was kind of a conversation of sort of like, it feels a little late to be doing this. Doesn't doing it? It? Yeah. 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 Um, so I think part of what I liked about it was the fun of like being able to dive back into this world that like, people just hadn't really been super engaged with. And like, I think the movie was better than it could have been because there are, it is, it is a really good looking movie and there are tons of really solid jokes in it. Even if I don't really love the plot of it at all, really. Um, and I do think my other beef with it, honestly, is that like, this is a very meta textual thing, but like they invited back every show, every previous showrunner to write on it, except for, Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein yeah, um, or Weinstein. So like, I, and that, that feels weird. And they're my two favorite showrunners on the show. They show my, 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 they're my two, two favorite writers and showrunners and my two favorite seasons are their seasons. So um, like, it's, 
that felt weird to me. And I don't know that I've ever really gotten a clear answer to why that was the case or whose choice that really was. So um, that, that always feels weird. And I do think a thing that they bring to the show when they're, when they were writing for, and especially when they were showrunners was like this really specific level of emotion that the show can dabble in sometimes, but I think they really found found it the right balance of it, where it's like not too sappy or sentimental and very based in character, and you can still be funny around it, but it still really tugs at your heartstrings at the same time. And that is something that like the movie tried to go for, but I think was mostly missing. And I think that if they had been involved, they could have brought that. Um, yeah. And I do think that they also were very good about like Simpsons continuity. Obviously, is a mess, but like they really understood like the lore of the show and like what things were important to keep in continuity versus like what's okay to throw out for the sake of a joke. Like they, I think paid a lot of attention to the history of the show. And that is another thing. That is something else that I think the movie also sort of what kind of whiffed a bit and like opportunities that they could have had to like, they knew that, that this was going to be a movie that diehards are be seeing. There's no reason to not find ways to tie it back into the show. And there were a lot of yeah. missed opportunities that I think Oakley and Weinstein uh, could have given to that, you know, I completely agree. And here's one of the things is I would say that if I hadn't have just watched it recently, you said, David, how was the Simpsons movie? I would have said, Oh yeah, it was pretty good. I would mostly be remembering that I could buy a Simpsons lookalike donut from seven 11. That would have been probably the top of my mind. <laughs> and I would have said like, Oh yeah, the movie was pretty good. Uh, this is like an American tale. Like you just shouldn't rewatch it. You should remember that the mice were huge. <laughs> Don't rewatch the movie. Like it's, it's just not worth it. Sure. <laughs> there are no cats in America. Those are the only lyrics to that song. It just goes over <laughs> and over and over again. Uh, well, then, Derek, you started to talk about this, but when did you fall off with The Simpsons? When did this stop being regular appointment viewing for you? I was I was watching it pretty consistently through like um, at least like 2007, 2008, and then semi-consistently through like 2012 um, wow. for sure. And I mean, I and I don't... I think even with the knowledge that it was like it had fallen off a while ago, like I think that a big turning point for the show of this a lot, there's obviously a lot of people have their arguments of what the golden era was and when it stopped being good, went downhill. And obviously the answer is like, there's never a straightforward answer. It sort of like becomes gradually less consistent as it gets older with age as any show does. I do think the sort of point and overturn I ascribe to is like what uh, the mod death episode. Yeah. I do think that that is sort of like, there's no turning back to what it, was before um like that that decision and that that whole episode is also just kind of dog shit like regardless of anything else um and i think like the show kind of fundamentally changes after that like permanently um that said i think that like i i also think that it's like silly to like completely throw the baby out with the bathwater because there are gems that come up in the show like there's there's not a, i'm sure there's not a season that has like it not at least one like really good episode in it it's just obviously the whole thing that was good about the simpsons and the golden era is that it was extremely consistent and like every right. episode was a banger for like eight straight years so you know that's that's the, the downside to it and i don't think that the show could ever possibly be what it was before no matter how good it gets just because it's not the 90s anymore television oh, yeah. is different and everyone is different culture is different the writers are all different and everything but you know there i definitely periodically like check back in or if there's an episode that sounds really interesting like they've done a lot of really experimental stuff in the past few years um any episode that i watch from the past few seasons is like even if i even if it's not like i'm not over the moon or like laughing hysterically it's still like 
that was a good episode of television, you know, and a lot of really great like writers write on it now. So like if it has to just exist eternally at this point, which seems like what the situation is, it, they aren't really phoning in it, phoning it in, oh. uh, which I think is what people's perception is. And it's not that the show really does genuinely try new things um, in its current, in its new seasons and, and does some really interesting stuff. It's just, again, it's not as it's never going to be as consistent as it was. And it's never going to hit the same way. Um, but, you know, I, I think the Simpsons is always going to be a really interesting thing to look at in any part of its era, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you've, you've picked up some recent episodes then whenever you see something like, did you happen to catch the Victor Garber episode where he's dating Smithers? Uh, like that was one recently that I caught. Cause I was like, well, that sounds interesting. Cause I love Victor Garber. I've yeah. always loved Smithers. I love queer people. Like let's do it. I haven't watched that one yet. Actually. I forgot that that happened, but yeah, yeah. I, I did not get around to watching it. He's, I'm sure I will also fine. say he's not being Victor Garber. He's just yeah. the voice of Victor Garber. And that, that sure. would, that'd probably be one of my, like, I started to yeet out once people started showing up as themselves. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was always kind of a little a little too much for me. But one of the things I noticed from, and I think that was season 31 that that happened, 32 maybe, uh, was how much different Kavner's voice sounds. Now we're going to be talking oh, about Kavner a bit when we talk about Marge, but how did that feel for you as someone who knew this voice probably like, yeah. like a second voice when you close your eyes to hear it today? Yeah, it's funny because like, I mean, you can, if you're really paying attention, like everybody sounds a little bit different, you know? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, I would say the Dan Castellaneta sounds a lot different as Homer yeah. than, than Julie Kavner as Marge. Yeah, even um, like Harry Shearer too, like all of his characters too. Um, but Kavner, it's, it's so interesting. I think Kavner, you notice it more than anyone else just because of the voice she's doing is so distinct, right? For Marge, like nobody in the history of the universe has ever sounded like Marge Simpson does. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think it's just, it, it just becomes a little more apparent. And it is a little, it's a little bit like weird and like, I, like it shouldn't be. I'm, I'm trying to approach this in like a delicate way. Cause I don't want to make it sound like recognizing that someone is aging. Isn't inherently a sad thing, yeah. but recognizing that, like, I think the realization that like 30 years, 30 plus years truly have passed and we are clo- probably closer to seeing Julie Kavner die than yeah. we've, you know, uh, than that I think we want to believe. And that same goes for any cast member of the Simpsons, Simpsons at this point. Like, I think there's just it's there's no way to not recognize that even if you don't want to admit that, you know. And, and and I don't think you you just don't really see that very often because there's so few shows where you have seen it consistently run for as long as this has to really be able to fully recognize someone like aging in front of you, you know, right. um, you get a little bit of that with um, uh, the new Futuramas. Uh, Billy West like sounds so much older now that he used to. He's still really good at his job, but like there was definitely like a significant amount of aging between the right. last 10 years over the last 10 years and it's just something like like you know it's just a reality of life obviously but having it sort of highlighted for you and highlighting the like longevity of these things like it's a little bit i don't know it's it 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 does there's something sort of weird and almost even a little bit humbling about recognizing that you know so yeah yeah. well and we don't we don't want people to have to work forever and whether that's for money or for that if you step down who will do it and i think that's something that voice actors in particular struggle with Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we're like, just spoiler alert, we don't record these one week before they come out. Right now, Derek and I are living in a, in a time in which there's a lot of criticism about the new Mario voice, like, but it, but it's okay for someone to move on and have a different career. They don't have to stay in this yeah. forever. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, the Simpsons conversation, it is always it's like the, the question of like, when, not if, but like when a Simpsons family member vo- actor inevitably dies yeah. and it seems like the show will be running when that happens it doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon like are they going to recast are they going to do an ai voice with all their recordings like are they going to just choose to end the show like all all, all three of those things are like genuine possibilities and, and it is you know and i can't imagine that that hasn't been a thing that's been talked about internally you know yeah. um and and i I, I just like to just not think about that because it's not gonna it's not gonna be fun no matter what. Um, but it is it is a weird reality of a show that has gone on as long as this has. Well then let's turn our minds to happier things, Derek, and let's talk about Marge Simpson. So yeah. Marge has always been a matriarch of the family, and her storylines are often about her navigation as a mother and a wife in a very grounded world. This is especially true for earlier seasons, but Marge gets a chance to have a Marge gets a job episode, just like Homer does. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but for, for Marge and for these early seasons, it's mostly a, a character who has unwavering loyalty to her husband, love for her children and support for the overall family. As Bartmania grew, uh, the show evolved to be a little bit wackier, and writers prioritized their time spent with Homer and Bart, who were more interesting to write for in a wackier type of episode, leaving Marge and Lisa episodes to be written by, quote, junior writers. Hmm. Because of this, early episodes where Marge or Lisa are strongly characterized involve them having their values be the source of their conflict and related comeuppance. You can look to Itchy and Scratchy and Marge, in which Marge gets sort of dealt this hand of, well, if you support art that has a a, a sculpted penis, then you're just as bad as violent cartoons. <laughs> and not their behaviors, which are result reserved for Homer and Bart, who instead get to learn lessons and grow. And I wondered from you, Derek, is what to what extent do you think that this early Simpsons writing characterization and who got to and was told to write scripts for the female characters driven by some sort of individualistic or systemic misogyny? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things about The Simpsons is like, it, it, I, I, I think like weirdly almost a thing that makes the show as like successful as, as it has been in, for such a long time was like that it could kind of, it didn't have to necessarily stick to very strict characterization for characters, right? Like the show would change pretty substantially depending on showrunner and writers and depending on what kind of tone you're going for. So like sometimes you have conversations about like, well, is this in character? Like, is this, is this what Homer would do? And it's sort of like, I don't know, man, it depends on the season and the episode. Like, are they going for like a silly wacky episode? Then yeah, he probably would do something stupid. Are they going for a more heartfelt episode where it's played more realistically Then no, he probably like, you know, it just depends. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think like who is, you know, who is driving the ship is, is very important to, 
what is happening on the show. Like I, it, it, you can, if you watch any individual season of the show, you can often tell who the showrunner is for that, you know, for that episode when it was coming out, depending on how wacky it is and who's yep. involved or how much is like a Hollywood commentary versus a commentary on, you know, just like regular life as a family. Right. Um, And, and there's like plenty of stories too about, like certain like John Swartzwelder, who's like one of the funniest writers on the show, like written so many of the best episodes, but like very famously would just forget to write Lisa and Marge into the script. And usually they'd end up getting like added like in the rewrite stage because he just and, and I don't think he was even necessarily like I guess it's technically misogyny to forget that women exist, but it wasn't like he was trying to avoid writing them. It was just like I want to write for the jokes. The funny people are Homer and Bart because they're the captain wackies of the show. Yeah. So you know, and and it just but I will say though, I do think that the counter to not the counter, but like the sort of positive that I think ends up coming out of it is that as the show goes along, I think because the writers have to work a little bit harder to write Marge and Lisa episodes because they're not Captain Wackies. Yeah. Like they, those episodes, I think often end up being stronger episodes of TV because you do have to base that in a certain level of characterization or like put them in more unique situations because they don't, they can't just decide to like, you know, get a new job and like drive a monorail or whatever. Like they have to, there has to be the, you have to work harder as a writer to get them into those situations, which means you have to like write a clear craft, a clearer, more complex story to do it. And so those episodes, I think just inherently become more complex and have to be a little more character based for those episodes to work and then just become kind of better because of it. I think, you know, wow. I totally agree with that thesis, Derek, because not only are you spending more time with them, but they're more emotionally resonant when you're not just using them to punish these two women characters and you get a chance to really explore things. I think about fear of flying, for example, where yeah. Marge is sort of exploring this like deep background that she's got around not wanting to fly. And we get some great Marge moments in that. And I, and I think, mm -hmm. you know, Marge does get to be wacky, but only in the Marge way. Yeah. Yeah. So when Marge is wacky, she shows up with a potato and says, I just think they're neat. Right. And that's like a meme for life. Or she's she's talking about the origin of her corn cob curtains yeah. uh, with some gay dude she's invited over for coffee. Like that. Or collecting Millhouse's teeth. <laughs> like, <laughs> Bob, why are you, what are you still deal with those? <laughs> that's where, I, and I think those are like some of my favorite moments because they're yeah. so, they're so kind of like inherently queer. They're so weird. Yeah. Sure. because Mar like that's not what marge is marge is this sort of straight laced person uh and so when you and i were talking about what episodes to do i love that you pitched this one but i was like oh we could do like uh class struggle in springfield or mm -hmm. uh any any of the other like really really marge episodes but you're yeah. right when it's just marge and we don't get to see her in the family her context of being a mother sort of slips by the wayside it's really yeah. hard to get it all right to talk about marge yeah, I mean, so many of her focus episodes, like Streetcar Named Marge, um, is like more about her relationship with Homer, Homer not necessarily her yeah. relationship with Homer, or, or not her, not her relationship as a mother, right? Um, and like scenes from a class struggle in Springfield, that would that was my second choice. Like that's my favorite kind of solo Marge episode, right? Because this is this episode is kind of a Bart and Marge episode. That one is very much, but that episode too is less about her as a mother and more about her just like trying to find like friends and like excitement and a place to fit in and like feel good about herself. And there's definitely a conversation to tie that to motherhood but like it that's but like that's not really what the episode is about you know um and it is sort of but it it, it is interesting yeah like anytime 
so many of her solo episodes are about like her as an artist or like her relationship with Homer or her right. trying to find friends or her like trying to like find some kind of self-worth with a job. And like the motherhood aspect is obviously inherent to her because of what her character archetype is. But like, this feels like the episode that is truly about Marge as a mom and her relationship with this, like, you know, the iconic Bart Simpson, like what it yeah. is like to be a mother of Bart in the situation. And honestly, and in the context of the whole family too, because like also having a, her husband being Homer, not really being able to parent Bart in the same way that she could. And now in putting her in a unique situation in this episode. So, yeah, I think what's great about the character is that there, there's so much to explore, but the depth here comes in no small part due to the performance by Julie Kavner, who was part of the Tracy Ullman show with Dan Castellaneta. Now, Kavner's performance is unique because of a bump on her vocal cords. It's not it's not a smoker's thing, which is probably what I originally thought. Sure. Uh, and she negotiated her contract that she would not perform the role of Marge publicly and takes mm. the division between who she is as an actor and who Marge is very seriously. Uh, there's a very, very uncomfortable David Letterman interview in which he is just trying to get her to be Marge, and she really will not do it yeah. uh that was a lot of fun to to watch and i wonder derek is is kavner's wonderfully honeyed gravel tone of marge's voice specifically maternal or have i grown up so long with marge that i now associate this tone with being a mother honeyed gravel tone is such a good way to describe that um i don't yeah i don't know that is a really good question it sort of reminds me of like a purring cat in a way, yeah. you know? And I do think that there is something that's not, that itself isn't inherently maternal, but I do think you can associate it with it where it's just sort of like, Comforting. there is a sense of like comfort and care and like warmth that comes from that. And I do think I do. So I, I, yeah, I, I feel like, like if, 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 if Kavner did this voice for any other character, like, I don't know that you would, I feel like she could still do it for Marge and it would come yeah. and it would come across more maternal than what she does for any other character, you know? So yeah. And there, yeah. Are, there are, there is a tonal difference between what she does for Marge and what she does for Patty and Selma. Uh, That's even true. That's very true. Yeah. Even what she does for her own mother, for Marge's mother. Uh, yeah. Whose name I don't remember. Lady Bouvier. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember Marge's mom's name. It's really embarrassing. But all voiced by Kavner, but I think there's something different about Marge. And I I mean, I do think that my brain is probably a little broken, uh, but uh, I, I think that there's something comforting in the way that it's presented uh, and the way that there's care underneath the sort of gravel part of the tone. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Derek, I wanted to take a quick detour <laughs> because we're talking Marge and I, I didn't yeah. know how much this was on your radar already. I mean, we're both talking Simpsons fans, so I assume yeah. you knew about this, yeah. but I wanted to talk about the controversy between the Simpsons and the uh, George Bush White House. The Early in the run of the show, then First Lady Barbara Bush uh, called the show the dumbest thing she'd ever seen, prompting a response that was attributed to Marge and sent to the White House, which the First Lady then responded to and apologized. I won't read the whole letter here, and I'll link to the uh, Entertainment Weekly article about it. 
but in short, Marge sent a letter to the White House, which read, Dear First Lady, I recently read your criticisms of my family. I was deeply hurt. Uh, I always believed in my heart that we had a great deal in common. Each of us lives uh, our lives to serve an exceptional man. And I hope that there's some way out of this controversy with great respect, Marge Simpson. A few days later, uh, First Lady Barbara Bush sent a letter back to the Simpsons offices, which read, Dear Marge, how kind of you to write. I'm glad you spoke your mind. I foolishly didn't know you had one. That's actually a pretty good zinger on Barbara Bush's part. I will give her credit for that. <laughs> um, clearly, you are setting a good example for the rest of the country. Please forgive a loose tongue. Warmly, Barbara Bush and a postscript. Homer looks like a handsome fella. Now, not who I would have thought Barbara Bush's type would have been Homer. But my question to you, Derek, is what do you think about this exchange? And in particular, what do you think about using Marge as the voice in responding to this criticism from the White House and First Lady Barbara Bush? It's all stupid. I think it's all dumb. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's it's it is it is. The bizarreness of having like the president and the president's wife like comment on a fucking TV show is like the dumbest thing, annoying thing in the world. Yeah. Um, but but I think I I I I think that it was a it's a very clever response to have Marge Simpson be the be the one responding um and being like, I'm trying to connect with you as a wife and mother here, you know, and just like there is wholesomeness in this show. You're just like refusing to acknowledge that. Um, and like, you know, and in all fairness, like it, it's not like the Simpsons was like, you know, uh, in line with the Bush family's values or no. anything like that. Like they were pretty diametrically op- opposed. So they really didn't have to respond at all. Cause it's sort of like, I mean, yeah, like <laughs> they wouldn't get along and they, you know, in, in, in universe end up not getting along. So like, you know, I, it's. It's all silly, but I do think it was this was a it was a fascinating way to go about it. Um, I think it's also evidence of it being a very different time because I don't think anything like this would happen today. You would have the president commenting saying dumb shit, but like you wouldn't have a fictional character responding and have it end in any way good. I think people would just find it kind of cringe if it happened now, to be honest. But it, yeah, it's almost a little cringe looking back on it from now. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have to believe in some small part, the writer's room was like, oh, I don't want to work. What else can we do? Oh, let's let's respond uh, as Marge to the White House yeah. about this thing that, that the president said. I will say that this wasn't the last time that the Bushes got involved besides them showing up across the street in Evergreen Terrace. In 1992, uh, George Bush said, we need more families like the Waltons and fewer like the Simpsons, which led Bart on air in an episode that they did a quick drop line in to say, yeah, man, we're both in a depression and uh, <laughs> a nice little, a nice little inver- universe thing. Yeah. Of their soon-to-be neighbor. Yeah, pretty good. Well, we're really talking about Marge Simpson, so let's get out of politics and take a real eye into the relationship between Marge and Bart by taking a deep dive into season seven, episode eleven, Marge Be Not Proud. All right. 
right. So we get a short intro into the episode. It's uh, it's important because if you're a watcher of The Simpsons, you can always tell how long the episode is going to go and how packed it is based on how long we spend in the intro. And this one, we are not wasting any time. We get a chalkboard gag about a 12-inch pianist and a couch gag of Homer pulling a plug in the living room, causing the family to go down the drain. Yes. Uh, do you have any favorite openings of The Simpsons, uh, Derek? Oh, do you have you go back to? Oh, wow. That's a really good question that I don't really, I haven't given a ton of thought to really, I guess, I don't know that I have a favorite so much as I have ones that have like stuck with me the most for some reason. Um, Like the, uh, the Monty Python foot nice. has always stuck with me. I th- couldn't tell you why that just imprinted on me. Um, The couch that turns into oh, like, like a monster, a, and, a eats monster and eats them. I love that one. And I think the one of them running off of the, like the film, like running off of the frame and like you see them running off of the running film because that's such a clever like animation joke yeah um yeah those are the ones that just kind of come to me a lot i I like just the really just the really simple ones i don't really i'm not a fan of like the super hyper complicated really long ones i know now they do a lot of stuff where they'll get like you know another artist to do their own take on the simpsons or whatever which is really cool Cool. appreciate they do it but like it doesn't work do anything for me at all i just like the weird kind of old school little animation jokes yeah Yeah. and i like there's very few bad things i can say about listening to talking simpsons but them making me aware that the giant circus opening was done for time Mm -hmm. um has ruined me because that was probably one of my favorites i was like hey it's so fun they got like a circus in their house yeah going and yep. now that i know that we're just burning seconds i, I feel yep. a little enthralled by joy yeah yeah but i mean you don't burn anything with the like the oakley and weinstein seasons because their no. their scripts are always way too long and like i mean this episode doesn't even have a b plot like yeah. it is like we have all of these jokes we need to get to and the story we need to get to yep. that's one of the reasons that i like their season so much yeah well, let's talk about it then, because we start with Bart and Lisa on the floor of the living room watching the crusty, crusty Christmas special, and a commercial comes on, comes on that advertises Bone Storm and encourages children to say, give me Bone Storm or go to hell. And the commercial to me is peak 90s, mid 90s oh, yeah. video game advertising, where the game had to be proven to be so extreme to make sense to buyers, since part of early games' success was the machinations of the imagination were important when you had low resolution video games. Uh, for me, probably the most egregious version of this was when the mascot character Mog from Final Fantasy VI uh, was a gruff casting agent interviewing monsters to be in the game, obscuring the tone and role of Mog in the actual game. And so my question to you is, is uh-huh. Derek, in addition to being a podcaster, you're a bit of an incidental pre- preservationalist, <laughs> streaming old VHS captures on your Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Mr. Darebear. Do you. you have any memories of commercials that meet the vibe of this Bone Storm commercial? Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, there's that was so hot in the 90s of like going like extreme, right? Yeah. I do think this is, and this, you're going to laugh because this sounds like like it's just, of course I would say this, but I do think it's a good answer. A lot of Power Rangers toy commercials went really hard on like, dude with like an extreme voice, like you can't handle the power. And there would literally be explosions and like the kid would be holding the Power Ranger toys, sur- like covered in soot and surrounded by like rubble of what his bedroom used to be after everything like crumbled and blew up. Like it was truly like, this is the most badass thing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. You buy the fucking Power Rangers, you know? Um, And it's like, and then you watch the show and it's just sort of like, it's not, that's not that <laughs> hardcore. It's not edgy at all. Like, so I think that, that kind of, 
thing. And I, but but I, I guess that was just the vibe for so many, especially video games, because like so many video games at the time, like especially you know maybe the the less good ones wouldn't even really have amazing graphics or anything. So they have to find some way to advertise it if they can't really show beautiful looking graphics on the TV. Well, then you're just gonna make it look like the most hardcore thing in the world that's like just yelling at you to buy it, right? Yep. This is how our household ended up with a copy of Star Tropics because the Ooh. video game advertisement for Star Tropics uh, made it seem like you would be battling these monsters in real time. And Star Tropics is a fine game. It is not a great game and it was not worth $70. <laughs> wow. Up to and or including $70. Yes. <laughs> Well, we get we get to that exact scene, Derek, because Bart enter, enters the kitchen the next morning to parrot, buy me born storm or go to hell. And Marge is not swayed. The game is too expensive, up to and including $70. It's <laughs> violent and distracts him from his schoolwork. Bart instead goes to Homer and Homer attempts to pacify him, but only ends up making things worse because when he was a kid, he wanted something and he got it. Story over. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think like, you know, I this episode i think there's a lot of there's a lot of really cool complexity that we'll talk about as it goes along but i do think that it's like even in this scene i know it's like obvious to be like marge is the sensible mother and homer is the silly dad but i do think it's like if you're looking at this episode as one sort of capsule right like its yeah. own sort of standalone story it sets up very clearly what the dynamics is going to be going forward where it's just sort of like in this episode the whole deal is that like Marge is just trying to be a sensible parent and Homer is just like not really present as a parent. It's not treated as a problem or anything in this episode, but like he's just not going to handle it. It really is ultimately up to Marge to deal with what she deals with, which I think is like why the episode goes in the direction that it does is because it is pretty much solely in Marge's court with dealing with, with these things. And this sets that up exactly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So when, when you're dealing with a husband like Homer, a mother can end up taking the sort of rule, the rule enforcer role with the family. And I think she does that here very clearly and very fairly. She lays yeah. out the stakes for Bart. It's not like a gotcha situation. And so I wanted to take a, a break from processing through the episode and ask you, Derek, when you think back to mothers and mother figures in your life, were they the enforcers of rules? Is that sort of the role that you experienced in your childhood? I, I don't know that it was as def like defined as I think it is like in a lot of TV shows. Yeah. Um, I think it was pretty, pretty even like, you know, my like mom still dealt more directly with the kids all the time. Like we would probably, we would probably go to her to ask her things before going to my dad, but it's not like like he it's not like if mom said no we would go to dad and he would say okay. yes okay. it would just be yeah. like he would just probably like we would just go to him and then he'd just be like well what does your mom say and then they would just talk to each other about it like it was a pretty pretty healthy well, how, situation i think actually sure, yeah yeah <laughs> well you would have sucked being on a sitcom derek that would have been I, no pretty much all. yeah i mean we were weird in many many other ways just not in that exact archetypal way <laughs> Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I think that we see it a lot in media, but that was also my experience. I didn't really have, uh, in fact, I would I would argue that my mother was probably more of a um, communist creator than a rule yeah. enforcer. So nice. I think that it was it was more about critical thinking. And then I was was like you, a nerdy kid. And so I would make up my own rules to enforce for myself. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. I didn't go that far, but... <laughs> 
Oh, well, the day goes on and we we come to find ourselves up in Bart's room and Marge is coming to tuck Bart in for bed, singing the tuck-in song. Oh, Bart boy. is annoyed and complains that tuck-in time is lame. And we get peak Marge embracing her mom's state by replying to that with, well, if loving my kids is lame, then I guess I'm just a big lame. I, I have many things about this whole, this whole little mini scene. Yeah. First of all, I think that it's so sweet that Marge like made up her own tuck in nursery song. Like uh, she's not singing any other, like this, she made this song up nursery melody and she melody. has many lyrics because we hear a different set later in the episode when she's tucking in Lisa. That's so true. Yeah. Like she's just that dedicated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so, you know, and it's like, even like when she says like a tuck is sweet caboose, like his little pat on the butt and everything. Tuck in time. All aboard the sleepy train to visit Mother Goose. Barty stop at Snoozy Lane to rest his sweet caboose. Like she's, it's obviously like, like for Bart, like she's infantilizing him a lot, but also mm-hmm. for her, he's a, still like a 10 year old boy. Like she's still, he's still a little baby boy. So it's all very clear. But also I love the like detail um, that, you know, as she starts, she, of course she was creative with creating the song. She wasn't creative when she starts talking about life as like a box of chocolates. But yeah. what I like about that joke a lot is that like, she starts saying life is like a bike box of chocolates. You never know. And then Bart like puts the bucket on his head, like bangs for a couple seconds. And then he takes it off and she's then she says what you're going to get, which means that she added a bunch of stuff in between you never know and what you're oh. going to get, I guess. Like what was like, what in the world else could you be saying in between those two? Like, I, I love that. It's such a subtle, like weird little joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's great. I think this is really peak, peak Marge as a mom. Yeah. Uh, we're getting a lot of it, but I also think this is our first sense of what will be one of two major conflicts between Bart and Marge in the episode, which is Bart growing up. And so mm-hmm. do you remember a time in your childhood where you grew out of something that you later thought was childish, like tuck in time? I didn't oh, get it. My parents were like, there's the bed, figure it out. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I, 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 I'm trying, I, I, I don't know that I brains going to a specific example, but I think that, I mean, even like, I remember deciding that I was going to stop saying mommy and start saying mom. Like wow. that was a decision that I made. And I don't know. I don't even, I don't even really exactly remember when that would have been like, I, maybe it was Bart's age, I guess, maybe younger. What do you, what like, when did kids normally stop saying mommy? I don't know. And I don't know how that normally goes either. I just remember there was one day where it was sort of like, I'm ready to stop saying this. And yeah. I can't imagine that that wasn't weird from my mom right like it has to be a little bit weird because suddenly there's a signal that like your kid is viewing you differently than they did like the night before um and that's you know i mean that's that's so much of what this episode is right it's sort of like the sort of like switch of like oh my god i actually am now seeing that my kid is not the same little baby that i thought that he was yesterday you know um so I, i i'm sure that there's a better example than that but that's that's the only thing i can really think of right now yeah yeah well i think that that's a normal part of our development is to grow and change the way in which we refer to people in our lives but it i don't know i I still get a little weirded out when people call their parents by their names i i just uh that's just yeah i can't do that that's i was raised and uh the point that i'll call my cousin and we'll talk about oh like how's aunt vic because it's her mother and she'll go oh vicary's okay so first of all we've never called her vicary uh that's like her full god-given name and why are why aren't you referring to her as your mother, you psychopath? 
I'm just worried about you now. Yeah, that feels, it's just, I don't know. It's like, I guess there's like not anything really morally wrong with it. As long no. as everyone's cool with it, it just feels wrong. It's something about it just feels wrong in the universe. And can I tell you the other thing that's really weird about it is I've had step parents my whole life who have always called by their first name. And mm. It, mm. it's, it's weird that there's probably something I could talk to a Freudian about, but there's, there's some sort of disconnect then with how you refer to these yeah. people based on that. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. What else is wild is that we get a little bit of comic book guy in this episode because Bart makes his way to Android's dungeon in an attempt to purchase Bonestorm, but he misreads the advertisement and it is not 99 cents to purchase only to rent. And it doesn't matter anyway, because they're all out of copies. Uh, Bart then walks home and as he passes Melhouse's home, it, which is bursting with light and sound uh, to the point that Bart can see it from outside, Bart deduces that he must be playing Bonestorm inside. Milhouse is having the time of his life and all he's done is entered his name. Thrill ho. This is great. And all I've done is enter my name. Thrill house. Uh, you know what? I actually meant to tell you that's how you should have introduced yourself at the top of the episode. You should have said, I'm Derek B. Gale. Thrill-ho. Thrill-ho. I do put that in games sometimes is my name. Sometimes. Yeah. That's incredible. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if it's a game, I'm not taking particularly seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you don't do it for like a Call of Duty game? <laughs> I don't Call of Duty. <laughs> do you guys seem like the type of person that plays Call of Duty? Nope, you don't. You I do did not. play. I did play Modern Warfare in college. That game was pretty good. But that's that was that was the only one. Well, um, you're like a you're like a parfait over here, Derek. Just layer, yeah. layers upon layers. Yeah, very complex. Well, when Bart tries to play with Millhouse, Millhouse shouts for his mom and tells her that Bart is swearing and Bart gets kicked out of the house. So with Luann Van Houten, we get one of two moms that we'll have to compare Marge to in this episode. She's still married to Kirk at this point in time in the show. Uh, I did have to look up the continuity on that because that's one of the things that actually yeah. like stays in continuity. Mm-hmm. In this scene, we see Luann as a force of weaponized discipline against Bart. And I wanted to ask you what, what, what did you make of Luann being an antagonist here? How is her discipline different than the discipline that we saw from Marge earlier in the episode? Oh, um, I, I don't, I mean, cause I wasn't really viewing her as an antagonist really. Like, I think that it's just, I mean, she's not really doing anything different than what Marge is doing in that she is, she thinks that her kid is like, she believes anything your kid's going to say. And if her child says that Bart is swearing and swearing isn't allowed in the house, she's going to kick him out of the house. You know, like she probably thinks he's a like kind of friend that's a bad influence and doesn't really want around anyway. You know, Um, like I don't, yeah. So I don't think, and it's like, I don't even, I, I think it isn't even really like a, yeah, like they're not really in contrast at all. I think she's just kind of on the same level as Marge in, in the situation. Yeah, we just get it from Bart's POV, which right. seem a little less fair. Right, which, but it's also like, I think that's really a smart observation though, because the thing that I really like about this episode is that like it is, it, it's kind of an unreliable narrator situation because we are seeing things through Marge's perspective and seeing things through Bart's perspective yep. and how they misread situations and the and, you know and the conflict comes out of there. In this case, it is Bart's POV of what Luann is doing is not is is going to position her as an antagonist to him because he she is kicking him out of the house, keeping away of the video game, keeping away of his yeah. friend when he didn't actually do anything wrong. So yeah. I will say that as Luann is dragging him down the stairs to kick him out of the house uh, for swearing, he insists that he's not swearing by swearing every sure. swearing you can say. I mean, of course, uh, that's what's funny. Very Bart. Very Bart. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, no luck at the house. No luck at the Android's dungeon. Bart turns instead to go to the try and save with a strategy that if he stands by the game, maybe someone will buy it for him. Uh, we encounter Gavin and his mom oh who are there to buy Bonestorm. And Gavin's mom asks if Gavin already has the game, to which he replies rudely. And uh, in the end, they buy two, so Gavin won't have to share it with his sister. As they leave, Bart remarks that he must be the happiest kid in the world. Gavin, don't you already have this game? No, Mom, you idiot! I have Bloodstorm and Bone Squad and Bloodstorm 2, stupid. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. We'll take a Bone Storm. Well, get two. I'm not sharing with Caitlin. That must be the happiest kid in the world. Gavin is one of my favorite Simpsons characters of all time. It's he's so fucking awful. And like I he's you know, he's just in this episode, like this is all this is this is his screen time. And it but it's like so distilled, like so perfectly the kind of kid that he is. Like, yeah. no mom, you idiot. Like, shut up, mom. We my mom and I would joke about that sometimes. Like I remember, like I would oh, really like, yeah, yeah. Like, cause that that is like cause yeah, I definitely met kids like that in school, you know. Like you have met kids that are just like just little fucking shits, just yeah. absolute shits. And like it may or may not really be the fault of the parent. It could just be that, you know, the kid just is just a fucking just a terrible person but like but a lot of times yeah, it is it is kids that are, are have parents that are just fucking pushovers you know right, um right. I, I i can think of things of the specific kid and and parent like that are very similar to that from my childhood so like you know i i yeah i, I it's 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 a it's so well observed and the idea that again you're seeing from bart's perspective of like that to him in that moment in in his like selfish 10-year-old rebel brain like that is the dream life is being able right. to do and say whatever you want and get whatever you want right um and you know which of course is the whole arc of this episode um and like in a weird way like he kind of gets his wish in this episode because he ends up in a position where his mom is like be just kind of just backs off and like kind of lets him do whatever he wants and it's just, but it's like a monkey spa situation because he gets that yeah. wish in like the worst possible way. Yeah. It's, um, it's also, I think pretty well observed that parents who try to buy video games for their children are really the, the real MVPs of the world because all of these do sound the same and yeah. you can be forgiven if you're Gavin's mom and you're like, don't we already own this? Yeah. And video games are expensive. Like I don't, I just, I, yeah, I don't blame any parent for just being like, Staying out of this, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in this one. Um, well, we then encounter Jimbo and Nelson who walk up to Bart to show them that they are shoplifting and we get a great line, four finger discount, dude, instead of, of course, <laughs> the five finger discount, which is what we would call it. It's clever. Yeah. Uh, I was vibing so much with Nelson in this moment as my favorite thing to buy or receive as a gift is a piece of clothing that I already have but mm -hmm. is an exact replica that is brand new. And I, I was just wondering, because I think we share some fashion sensibilities. Did this resonate for you as well? Yeah. 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 I, I definitely have. Um, I don't buy like, you know, I don't, I don't get like, I don't get like graphic shirts the same, but like, they're definitely like, there's some underwear that I've been like, I like this exact yeah. color and this exact yes. cut. I'm going to just buy the same ones. Um, and some, some t-shirts and shorts that I had just have multiple copies of. Absolutely. I think if you find a good pair of walking shoes, you should buy three pairs of them and That's just like really good idea. 
Because when yeah. you're ready for the next pair, they won't be there anymore. They'll be gone. Yeah. 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 Speaking of clothes too, I just love like this is a Christmas episode. I don't even mention that up front, but like this is a Christmas one and they make it a point to, you know, put them in Christmas clothes in this episode, which is always just fun, uh, especially in the early days, to, like see the Simpsons just in different outfits and Bart's purple hoodie. I love his purple hoodie so much. Yeah. <laughs> Six episodes from the day of Simpsons roasting on an open fire was this episode release. Yeah. It, really <laughs> fascinating that this is like the first Christmas episode that they do after that one. You know, that's yep. the first episode ever released. It makes sense that they maybe would be afraid to touch it. And it's such a smart move to like once they finally do return to try doing another Christmas episode like they don't try to just do another Christmas episode they do an episode that just takes place at Christmas you know like I think that's a it's such a smart way to go about that so Derek I wanted to ask you have you ever shoplifted anything no I I oh, can't say that I can't say that I have um I don't think like nothing if I did it wasn't anything serious yeah um yeah. I took a pack of baseball cards, but I only wanted the gum. And sure. Yeah. That's uh that's about as that's as about as naughty as I got. But I always again I looked at Bart and I think there were enough shows in the nineties that told me that if I shoplifted, I would face <laughs> innumerable consequences. And so I could yeah. never do it. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I just never even really had the inclination to do it. Um I don't know, I guess I don't like I don't I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why. Uh, my sister did. I remember when she was a little, little kid, she, she stole some bubble tape from the candy aisle and my mom drove her all the way back to food lion, which was like 15 minutes away uh, to have, to, to return it, teach her a lesson and have like the uh, cashier or store manager, whoever, like talk to her about why shoplifting is bad. And I'm like, wow. I don't know, that feels like a little bit of an overcorrection. Like it wasn't a big deal. Like wow. <laughs> we're, talking, we're talking bubble tape, six feet of bubble gum. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Wow. Wow, that's yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that that I'm glad your sister had to give it back because if she had chewed that, that would have taken a year off her life. Yeah, <laughs> some nasty stuff in there. Yeah. Well, after uh, Jimbo and Nelson leave, Bart is guided by his conscience in form of video game characters who help him to justify his decision, which ultimately is to steal Bone Storm. He walks out of the store and is then apprehended by security. As he gets taken back inside the store, Gavin and his mom are leaving, and Gavin's mom remarks that his parents must have made some mistakes in raising him, which I think gets us another shut up, shut mom. up, mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing that I um that I okay, there's there, I mean, there's so much stuff in this episode, obviously, because the Simpsons is packed. But like, I do, I I love the whole all of the video game characters that, that, that they do around Bart, like trying to like pushing him to, to do it, but then like leave Carvalho being like his conscience is so funny. Like it is so funny. Um, but also like, this is, this is a thing, like a thing that I like about how well-constructed this episode is. There's like a sign gag of saying that the try and set, try and save like in honor of our Lord and savior will be open all day on Christmas. But like, that's like important because that justifies yeah. how Bart is able to get the gift at the at the end of the episode on Christmas Day. Like they put put they they put that seed in there so then like they can justify the emotional ending and it's done in a sign gag. Like that's it's so smart. 
Yeah. And you'll also know that, of course, I looked at all the video games in the cabinet and they are well constructed. They're not mm-hmm. great joke jokes. Like they weren't. Really- I, I, like I like a streetcar named death. I like a streetcar named death a lot because it's so bad because it's like so bad. Like it's so awful. And that's why that and it like it sounds like a joke that a child would make as like like a middle schooler would make as their funny parody of a play that they know the name of but know nothing else about. I love that. <laughs> So earlier I mentioned there are two moms that we can compare Marge to. One is Luann and the other is Gavin's mom. Because Gavin's mm-hmm. mom remarks that Bart's parents must have done something wrong, but the way that she raises Gavin has led him to being who he is. What was your read overall on Gavin's mom? We talked about Gavin, but there's got to be a Gavin's mom in your in your childhood story as well, right? Yeah. I mean, the Gavin that I knew had a Gavin's mom. I think it's yeah. like, you know, a mom that is just, you know, I, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because I actually think the through line between Marge and Gavin's mom and Luann are that like there's different levels of denial of who their child is and yeah. not wanting to acknowledge that. Right. Like, Good and that's right. just like every parent's fear I think is like the potential that your kid could fucking suck and you don't want to like, and you don't want to the fear that you would have to deal with that. Right. <laughs> like, and, and, and I think that's, you're seeing, you know, different reactions in different ways. Like Luann never has to confront it. Marge is faced with that confrontation and like, doesn't really know how to deal with that and deals with it in a not particularly great way. And Gavin just probably never will. Gavin's mom probably just never will. She's probably like hopped up on Valium or whatever, like isn't actually paying any attention. Like she doesn't seem like she's, she's, she seems just completely oblivious to what is happening. And that's part probably what the problem is that she's not seeing the reality. But I I, I think it's, you know, I think it's again, a very well-observed thing about parenthood saying this is someone who isn't a parent, but like who is a being a child of a parent. I think my experience was sort of like, seeing like at what point are you actually seeing me for who I am versus seeing who you want to see or think that I should be based on who I was when I was like a literal toddler, you know? Yeah. And parental narcissism is a huge issue in this area because when parents can't see children as a a totally different subset, they make some really interesting decisions in how they are reared, how they are enforced and what things are left sort of to the child's own devices. So I think you're hitting the nail on the head a lot here. I think that because of Gavin's, I mean, I don't want to be like a jerk who diagnoses people, but Gavin's being a little sociopathic here. Oh, yeah. I think that maybe maybe Mrs. Gavin's mom is is some somehow self-medicating or dissociating in order to not deal with the <laughs> idea that she created this monster. I think that's fair. And I think there's also like the contrast of like Gavin, you know, we only see a little bit of them and they're all cartoon characters. So obviously sure. it's all broad. But I think Gavin, I think you can make the distinction between Gavin and Bart that like Gavin is seems to just just truly be the like true narcissism like here like he's just like i want the game for me i don't care about anything else everyone else is stupid but me whereas bart like does have to be like kind of coerced and like peer pressured into doing the shoplifting you know and that is that is like like he is like bart is being selfish by just this whole episode just thinking he deserves bone storm no matter what but like it's selfish in like a really in a real human and especially like kid way you know um and i i do think that that differentiates him a lot it's a good gavin is a good contrast to bart's like level of rebellion 
I agree. I agree. That's that's just a totally good read. I had to look up a picture of Gavin to confirm this, but that braided ponytail thing he's the got rat tail. Back, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that that contributes a lot to how we're reading this as well, because in 1995, that hairstyle communicated a value. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, I think that was very intentional to yeah. for them to draw that hairstyle on him. <laughs> yeah, I guarantee someone someone who was running the show was like, I know a Gavin. Like, I got yeah. this it's in the pocket. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of this episode came from like Mike Scully wrote it and a lot of it was his own experience like he shoplifted as a kid and then like felt guilty about about it forever. Um and and so like I think I think that's part of why so much of the stuff is really well observed because he was like very intentionally pulling from his childhood experiences. So like I guarantee that like Gavin and Gavin's mom are people that people on staff are specifically thinking about when they were creating this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I I wonder almost uh macabrely, I, I wonder how many of the folks who worked on early Simpsons have have accidentally created Gavins in their life now that God. they are uh living a different lifestyle, you know. Sure, yeah. <laughs> we go to commercial and when we come back, we are back with Bart as a security guard Brodka plays him Shoplifters Beware, a public service video with Troy McClure. Uh, pretty, I mean, just great Troy, Troy McClure here, but not a lot to talk about for the purposes of our episode. I, I do like the the definition of shoplifting being literally lifting, lifting shops and stealing, but yeah, I, we don't have to talk about that. There's 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 more important things to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, he stops the video and stops us from getting more Troy McClure and, and calls Bart's parents. He leaves what sounds like in the dialogue, a voicemail or a message on the answering machine. But uh, once he finishes, he goes, they weren't home. And that's just how he talks for the rest of the scene, which is so clever. It's such a good, it is such a good joke. This episode, like, obviously we're talking about it from a really particular perspective, but like this episode is so funny. Like yeah. this, it, it is like oh, peak, yeah. like density in terms of joke, like one a minute. It is, it is so good um i mean this was i don't know if i said this already like this is my favorite episode of the show like number one like like bar none you know and i think part of it is because it is such a perfect fusion of this really emotional complex really smartly written story and so many goddamn good jokes like one right after another some of them i think are kind of even unsung and like not quoted very much but like are so still so good and like everything with Brodka, it's like what a bizarre character to have come up with here um but like they do so much good and then with like the cheese and crackers at the end of the scene like it's just he's such a weird character i love it he's a weird guy and it's so well realized and it just fills in the parts of this character. He's got a great voice to it. Sort of yeah. is the whole package. Yeah. Bart uh, is intends to run home as fast as he can to replace the tape on the answer machine. But as he leaves, Brodka tells him never to return to the store or he'll end up in juvenile hall, uh, which is perhaps a, a bygone era term, but some sort of incarceration for children. Yeah. I like the, uh, the, the capiche. And Bart's like, do you understand? <laughs> like everything except Capiche. <laughs> and that comes back in a really fun way. Yeah. I think I actually skip on the notes because the scene was such a, a quick one, but he appears yeah. in the back of the, the seat as sort of this like ominous figure and says catfish in Bart's memory. Yeah. Catfish? Remember. Yeah. <laughs> so Bart hurries home, but he's passed by Homer and Marge in the car. 
Bart takes a yeah. shortcut, which assures him victory. Uh, but Homer, when he gets home, plays the answer machine, seeing that there is a message on it, to reveal that Bart has switched the answer machine tape with Alan Sherman's Hello Mudda, Hello Fada. And <laughs> we see Bart slipping the original answering machine tape back where no one will ever find it, which is the case for Alan Sherman, which is marked on the tape as Camp Granada, which is not the name of the song. <laughs> Uh, Derek, television in the 90s prepared me for a lot more hijinks involving an answering machine than I've ever experienced in real life. Did you all have an answering machine? And if you did, did hijinks ensue? Yeah. um, I mean, nothing like this. I didn't ever have to deal with like swapping out a tape or anything like that. But there definitely were like experiments with like recording, you know, the actual answering machine message. Yeah doing fun things with that or having the whole family say something or making a joke on it or doing the like, hello, haha, just kidding. This is my answering yeah. machine. You know, uh, the thing that every single person did with that new technology. Um, but, and there's some like prank calls that I remember getting recorded on there by neighborhood ki- kids, but nothing like super exciting. Wow. Wow. We, um, we never did. I, I don't ever recall doing a fun answering machine one. So sorry for being a boring person in your life. I will say the first time that I remember an answer machine, we only said four numbers on it. We said, hello, you've reached 5764, which was the number for the farm, because that's all you needed to dial to get the farm when I was a kid. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, well, then maybe we don't have an answer machine version, but did you ever have to hide evidence from your parents of some sort of wrongdoing or perceived wrongdoing? Yeah. I, the first thing comes to mind, I remember a note. I don't even remember what I was mad about, but I was mad about something. And so I wrote a note saying I was going to run away from home. Obviously never intended to do it, but I said I was going to, but then I changed my mind. Um, But I did what they caught. They found the note somehow. Like I did, I should have ripped it up or bumbled up and thrown in the trash can, but I guess I didn't, or they saw it before I had a chance to actually throw it away. And so I got like in trouble for threatening to do that. Cause that was like a mean thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the first thing that came to mind for me. I wrote a coming out letter and, uh, oh, and, wow. and chickened out giving it and slid it behind the vanity in my bathroom. Oh my God. And, uh, probably uh, 15, 20 years later, uh, my parents reformed the bathroom and found the note <laughs> and we all had a good laugh about it. Wow. That's hilarious. <laughs> But besides I do, that, I, 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 I did cut myself really bad once and felt embarrassed about it. And so I hid all of the like bloodied clothes and oh my gosh. Like, that stuck with like today I look back at it and go, wow, <laughs> like a child should not do that. Yeah. Wow. I do remember this isn't an evidence thing, but it's the thing that I don't know that I ever, if I told them, I maybe only told them like a few years ago, like in jest, but like I, I, it was uh, it was when the internet kind of first happened and dial up, you know, was a thing. Um, and I started using the internet too much, and so it would tie up the phone line. And they got mad at me for it, and my punishment was to like put a password on the computer and literally lock me out. But I cracked the password, and so I would still go online. Just I would just do it in the middle of the night when they were asleep. Oh, and I never told, they never found out about it. <laughs> That's so great. I think I've told the story maybe to you before, but when my cousins and I first wanted to get on the internet, we went to Kmart and bought like a 60 foot phone cord because that's how far the computer room was away from the phone jack. And mm-hmm. we got up super early in the morning, ran this phone cord. And then one of us would stand lookout for my aunt. And if she was getting up that we would flurry to get this 
phone cord unplugged and rewrapped up so that we could get, I don't know, into a chat room to be like ASL. And that's, that was the only outcome of that. So entire funny. Endeavor. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. None, none of you who grew up in the two thousands as children will understand this because you just have internet everywhere. It's just everywhere. Right. Right. <laughs> Well, we're uh, back in the Simpsons house and Marge enters the kitchen to find the refrigerator stocked with eggnog because of course it is Christmas and the ubiquity of the eggnog and drinking it uh, solely is causing Lisa to have chest pains. And so my first question before we move on with the scene uh-huh. is Derek, do you mess around with eggnog? Oh yeah, I, I, I've I made eggnog a couple of times. I've never done it. I don't think I've ever done it with no, I know I have. I've I've done it both like the cooked version and the raw egg version. Um, I love eggnog. I usually I don't I don't make it that often because it's like, you know, it's you can buy so much of it so easily from the store that's still good. So I usually just default to buying it. But I've made it a couple of times. Um I've I've given it away as as I gave it away as a gift one year, homemade eggnog. But um yeah, I, I love it. I I'm I uh, now I feel like it's a lot, it's a lot easier to find like long before and after Christmas, but you know, back when it was a lot harder to find, I was the same as Homer, which is sort of like, we only get this for a brief time. <laughs> I'm getting my goddamn eggnog and drinking as much as I can during this brief time period that I am able to before it's the government takes it away again. So yeah, I'm, I'm extremely pro eggnog. So that doesn't surprise me because I think that people who enjoy circus peanuts and people who enjoy eggnog is a perfect circle. Calling me out right now, but yeah. Right. Well, I just, it would have been really weird if you're like, I don't do eggnog, but I eat circus peanuts would have yeah, been strange to me, but it's surprising to me that you are a homemade eggnog person, but will do store brand. I can't do it from the store. Really? Yeah. I think they're both good. I mean, all I really, I mean, the thing is like, there's some that are there's some store brands that are better than others. I think it's part of it. I think it's just a matter of like finding the right one. And, and some of them, a lot of times too, it's sort of like you buy it, but then you still might, might like add your own like spices to it after you get it. Um, adding out and adding, adding good alcohol to any eggnog really helps as well, no matter (laughs) what the brand is. So (laughs) did your family make eggnog? Is that where this came from? Or did you know this as an adult? Wow. Um, We we would buy it. My family liked buying eggnog. So I've drank it as a kid, but I, I didn't try the first time I made it was maybe, I don't know how long ago. It was like 2017 or something. It was around then. Okay. Okay. So somewhat recently in life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating, Derek, because we grew up with eggnog, and I will actually share my eggnog recipe in the show notes. This was passed down. This particular picture comes from my mother, and it was was made for me when I became an adult because it was so important. But I didn't grow up knowing this as eggnog because my grandmother made it, and she was Jewish and converted uh, when she got married. But had a general disdain for all things Christmas. So she would do all the things, but then we wouldn't call them the right thing. And I grew up calling this special milk. And so when I got to college, (laughs) I offered to bring special milk for a Christmas party. And I was thoroughly uh, harassed by all of my teen male friends because it sounded like I was bringing cum. Wow. Yeah. That's I love the little kitty on this. Uh, I know. This recipe. So but so see, you'll look at this and you'll go, David, where the fuck are the spices? There are none in our family, uh, recipe, which is probably why store brand eggnog feels ooky to me. That's so weird because I think like the nutmeg is like what makes eggnog eggnog for that's me. what everyone says. That's what everyone says. Yeah. Wow. Wild. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, What's I might have to try your family recipe and then still add the spices to it because I will. I will say, and I don't remember what it says on my mother's card. Don't use raw eggs. Use egg beaters. Don't kill your friends and family. Uh, yeah, they well, you know. already pasteurized. Yeah, you know, or I, come, out, come out here to Europe where we don't have to worry about that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely made it with raw eggs and have been fine, so it's yeah, all right. I have too, but I I started using egg beaters whenever I would do it for friends and family. I've, I mean, and it sure it doesn't it doesn't change the flavor of it or anything. So no, yeah. It yeah. Work. Well, Marge reveals that they're getting pictures taken today at the try and save, which prompts a great visual gag of smoke coming out of Bart's ears, but it's just Marge's two teapots. God, it's so funny. Oh, my teapots are ready. They're not even teapots. They're tea kettles. That's what I love about it. It's like, it's like not even correct. Like she's saying the wrong thing. Also, why is she doing two of them? Why is there two of them faced away from each other on the stove? None of it makes sense. That's what's so fucking funny about it. <laughs> But it works because it's Marge. She's allowed to have two tea kettles running at the exact same time because she's Marge Simpson. Like, what else is she doing? Right? Like, yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's so so good. (laughs) That was probably that was probably the thing that I had forgotten about this. That when I rewatched, I was like, "This is hilarious." Genuinely, it is such a stupid joke, but it is genuinely one of my favorite jokes on the entire show. Yeah. (laughs) Back up in Bart's room as he gets ready for the picture to be taken, Bart remembers Brodka's warning and fantasizes about being in Juvenile Hall for Christmas. And I'll say that Bart's fantasy is grim, and it's the exact kind of catastrophizing that a 10-year-old like Bart might do. Do you, Derek, remember any scenarios about punishment that you were expecting that were this extreme? Um. Yeah, I think I have a probably stupid fear of like being imprisoned in some way like even to this day like prison stuff freaks me out a lot um and the idea of like going to prison and what if you know i watched all of orange is the new black and was constantly thinking of like every wrong thing that i have ever done as an adult um because i mentioned you know i said i didn't do bad shit as a kid that's not the same thing as my adult life um so, so you know so yeah i i definitely had um you know i definitely that that kind of stuff definitely like would freak me out just the idea of like that there was a prison for children that existed yeah. like that juvie was a thing like that you know i never did anything bad enough as a kid to like have anyone actually give me that threat but knowing that existed like terrified me a lot yeah. like i think i just uh, have a have a thing about like freedom in general i guess like everybody does i'm sure but like specifically like just one of my worst fears is like not being able to like be able to be free i guess or as free as i am now you know well not to get traumatic but have you ever been to jail like if you're like drunk tank actually i don't think i've ever actually been in a prison or anything now that really? i think about it which is I kind of surprising because i've known people that have been in jail but i guess i just have never like i've never had anyone that i felt the need to visit or anything yeah. so yeah. i never would have had any reason to i'm trying to think if i've ever like toured one or anything as part of like i don't know some, some straight, something yeah. you know well I, I definitely didn't do like scared straight or anything like that but I, so i don't know i guess yeah i guess i've never had any reason to actually go into an active inactive prison or jail interestingly wow. i never even really thought about that but yeah yeah for a glimpse into my life i'm the only person in my family who hasn't been to jail uh-huh. um even i mean some of it was just like drunk night or yeah absolutely parents caught with pot which in michigan in the 70s and late 60s would have been enough to like be deported to canada yeah but 
uh, they just spent the night and then were bailed out. Um, Mike actually uh, had a public intox that I had to go bail him out of once. And it was wow. uh, really, really scary for him. His mom had just died. And, you know, like, uh, yeah, it's terrifying. And, yeah. But it's really, really scary because these things aren't designed well. And then I've yeah. been in prison for like uh, therapy stuff. But mm-hmm. when you're when you're working, it's just a totally different vibe. Yeah. Treat you very differently, very respectfully. I will say that anything you see that's like people are going to try to touch your hair and stuff when you're. When you're working, I did not experience that. Right, right. But you are you are right to fear incarceration. Like that would suck. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Bart does come downstairs after his fantasy, but he comes down in disguise and Marge implores Jeez. him to let her have one nice family photo showing us all the past photos that have been ruined by Bart's pranks. Probably my favorite, and I'm guessing your favorite, is him holding up a speech bubble that says, I stink, and Homer saying, I don't remember saying that. Yeah, it's such a good joke. It's also just like literally all Marge wants is to have a nice family photo. Like I think that's a a thing that's so indicative of her in in this whole episode is that like, all of her needs are extremely straightforward or extremely like just should be very simple, you know? And I think that's what's, I mean, really, I guess for, for both her and Bart, like that's the thing that I think is interesting is that once, you know, once this like kind of next scene blows everything up, like the thing that is so interesting about this episode is like both of what they want is so straightforward. Marge wants a nice family photo and just, a nice Christmas. Bart just wants one video game. Right. And yet like those two sort of conflicting things <laughs> end up like kind of, you know, just completely mess with their relationship. You know, did you as a family take these kind of photos? Did you? Oh, go yeah. Basically, we, we didn't. Yeah, we didn't do like every year, but yeah. we we did. We would periodically. Yeah, I think we went to JCPenney and Sears. I feel like we did. We did both of them. The classic stuff with the, yeah. you know, the probably like the sky blue background and everybody's dressed really nice and the little, you know, um, you know, sitting on the cubes and the little stuffed animal, like trying to cheer up the child who's inevitably going to be crying in the picture. Um, yeah. Yeah. We definitely had that that experience. It's pretty spot on in this episode, too. Yep. I remember one that we got taken as kids and I wasn't smiling enough. And so the woman said, okay, I want you to look directly at me. And she shimmied and said, boobies. Oh my God. Well, later, you know, in life, of course, being like that was the wrong tact, but yeah, that's so funny. That's so funny. Yeah. I was always a very, I was always a very good photogenic child. All my pictures were me smiling. I, I love to be a little performer for it. Um, my sister, my little sister was the one who would just be crying all the time or, or like really angry or not want to be there. There's an entire, one of my favorite things is this, I think it was when she was like two or something, but there's a collage that I think we still probably have somewhere that was like, it's a collage of her. Like it was her first, like, you know, photo shoot as a toddler and every single picture of her, she either is like angry in her face or like has tears in her eyes or her face is totally red because she's just been crying and it's a whole collage of them. And it is so funny. Like my parents, you know, weren't like they were not like stricter sticklers about any of this stuff. Like they just found it hilarious. So yeah, like, why not yeah. just do? It, you know? That's awesome. I love yeah. that. I love that so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, we get to the try and save, and the family wants to do everything in the world. So Bart has to attempt to hide from cameras and Brodka, and he's successful right up until the moment of the family photo, where the photographer captures the exact moment of Bart being yanked away by Brodka. Marge comes to Bart's defense, but Brodka's got him on tape. 
The tape plays and everyone can see that Bart was shoplifting Bonestorm and Marge is heartbroken. Yeah. I mean, like the whole lead up to it, I mean, when, when Brodka shows up, it's just like, it's the denial thing, right? She's like, he's not a, he's, she says specifically, he's not a shoplifter. He's just a little boy. Yeah. And I think that that's, and she even acknowledges that, that he may not be perfect, but I know in my heart that he's not a shoplifter. So it's like, I think this really interesting, it's like, you know, she, she knows that Bart's a troublemaker, but like also he is a little boy and like that's kind of a cha- contradiction. But like for her, it's exactly what makes sense because that's the sort of the denial you kind of have to be in as a parent a little right. bit, you know, like, you know, you, you have to love this kid unconditionally. Right. And like so for her, it's just sort of like why why even why even acknowledge the notion that he could do a bad thing, even if. He is, you know, he isn't perfect. Right. And I think you do have to like acknowledge that the show ebbs and flows with its own continuity and characterization. Like obviously early season Bart truly is just a fucking monster, just a little hellion, like doing awful things and future seasons too. In, in this episode and really the season for the most part, like Bart is written to be more of just a kid, like a little bit of a rebel and tries to be cool but for the most part he is just like such a your average boy and i think that you have to acknowledge that for this episode to work because for marge like this could be a kind of thing that is like as a parent you just like don't want to have to deal with um and you just kind of have to ignore the cartoonish awful things that he's done in past episodes like that just doesn't really exist in the scope of this episode right right and uh, you know this gives us the first of two beats what it's one right now and right one right after the commercial that follows this of mm-hmm. this brokenness between bart and marge it's a it's a sort of brokenness of trust it's a brokenness of seeing him as a little boy and i wondered how did this emotionally make you feel here at the end of the act yeah i mean i think that because what's it what you know, I was saying what's interesting about this episode is like the sort of different perspectives, right? And the the whole, you know, we've been talking about this, the whole like first half of this episode is like very little Marge, mostly Bart. So we're really seeing this. So when we get to this point, we are skinning it mostly through Bart's perspective. And I like that he has the acknowledgement of like, mom, I don't want you to see this. And you can tell that he's being very honest about it. Like he does, he does feel guilty, but I think more than feeling guilty, he recognizes that like, this is really going to hurt my mom. Like, regardless of anything else like i just don't want whatever punishment i'm going to inevitably get i don't want my mom to have to see that i did this because i don't want to hurt her which i think is really important because it's like this isn't this isn't a sitcom kid who's like just trying to be a little shit like this isn't a gavin bart does actually care about his mom very you know a lot you know and I, i so i think that's a really important point to have um, and so it's really devastating when it's just like, I mean, he he can't, she can't not see what happens, right? I mean, literally, because there's like the whole screen of TVs, which is like very funny, but also like, this is the sort of moment for both of them, which is sort of like, fuck, like we both have to confront what just happened right now. Um, and and I think like a thing that I, that I find really fascinating about this episode, that I think a lot of people get wrong about it based on like what some of the reactions that I often read um, is like, I think a lot of people really just see this episode as being like two things. Either it's just an episode about how stealing is bad, which I don't think the episode is really, I think it's the inciting incident, but that's really not what the episode is about at all. Or they see it as like Marge, like being manipulative and punishing him in like a really like emotionally tormenting way, which is just flat out wrong. Um, And I think it's because the episode is just a little more complex than that because it really is just sort of like, 
this moment of like of that I think is very natural where a parent and a child both have to mutually recognize that the other is a person that like the un- the unconditional love thing like actually actually address that right like when you're growing up as a little kid the unconditional love is just a factor of life but once you start becoming like individual people like once you as a kid start seeing that your parent is a person that you can hurt and make feel bad and once you as a parent see that your child is a person with flaws and complexity and like choices that you might not agree with like that is there. You, there's no. That's like there's no turning point from there. Suddenly, yeah. it's sort of like, oh, this is you have like moved up a level in life. Suddenly, you have to recognize that you are two different people and deal with that. And the episode is just ultimately about them having to like figure out a way forward once they've crossed that threshold of like, Bart isn't my little baby anymore. What do I do with that? And Bart being like, I'm not my mom's little baby anymore. What, what do, do I, I do, do with that? that? Yeah, that's a that's a really good read, and I think it's also consistent with how i sort of viewed this episode which the these two conflicts came to head one um my child's growing and two my child my child betrayed my trust and he can't betray your trust if he's an infant so they end up holding hands as two conflicts which become one in the third act yeah absolutely yeah that's a great way to put it and that's where we pick up because Homer is yelling at Bart, but gets characteristically off track by mentioning the police academy movies. <laughs> he fucking hates those police academy movies. That's like one of like two times it comes up in this show. It's so funny. I don't As know. As he should. Yeah. As he should, Derek. <laughs> I think I've mentioned this on other things, but I went through a phase where I was like, I'm going to watch all of the references The Simpsons makes. And so I felt compelled to watch the police academy films. And afterwards, I, nope, I'm a, I'm an apologist for Homer. <laughs> he should hate the police academy movies. <laughs> After the diatribe about police academy movies, Bart apologizes to Marge, but she's emotionally detached and sends him up to bed. Marge hangs the photo that was taken, Mm. which tilts askew, and she sighs. Uh, And I think not having Marge be mad is a choice that is probably pretty devastating for viewers to have. So I wondered how you felt about Mm. this scene and what, if anything, changed between Marge before learning this and Marge now? I think I, it's it's really interesting because I think that, like, I think the thing is that, like, I think Mar- nothing has changed yet. I think it's Marge still processing it. And that's why yeah. she has this non-reaction because they she is literally just staring blankly. Doesn't she doesn't make eye contact with them. She's just like and he's and Bart and. Bart is like actually in the position where he's like pleading in ways that we never see him do. Like, cause I think that he, for one, I'm sure he's scared of being punished, but also I think like we saw earlier that he really does care about his mom. And I think he recognizes that, like, I think I hurt her really bad. Like, I really am sorry. And I feel, you know, I feel bad about it. And, and it's all been very well set up that he was kind of peer pressured into doing this. So it's sort of like it, you know, it's at, it, it's not like he was trying to be a little shit and he honestly, yeah. earnestly is trying to apologize. And so it, it's really extra devastating when it's just like, she doesn't even acknowledge him. She's just like, I don't know. Why don't, why don't you go to bed? And there's like no hostility and right. it's like scarier almost because it's sort of like, well, what's, ha- what's, what's happening here? Like, this is not the same, the same person that I've ever dealt with. And so, and I think for her, it's just sort of like this, this, the, the, the concept of this episode is sort of like, what if, marge like recognize that her kid what like what if marge recognized what 
we all, you know, we all see and what people were criticizing of Bart Media and stuff. What if Marge saw that too, right? Like, right. what if like Bart being this bad influence, bad kid, whatever, what if she like actually like peers, you know, through the veil and actually gets a glimpse of like what Bart could be, right? Um, and it's almost like in a metatextual way, like she was created as like your typical mom sitcom character in a show that was like riffing on the sitcom family or the nuclear family. Right. So like she is intentionally positioned to be the mom who just like cares for the wacky characters in her lives, no matter what they do. Like what if it actually did hurt her and she really did question like, if that's like what to do about that or how you can do anything about that. And like, and I think there is something different between like, you know, punishing a kid who does something bad and just being like, could this kid, be a bad person potentially like could my child actually be someone who is capable of doing bad things in a way that i didn't think was possible and like it's almost silly for all of this to come from just like stealing a video game from a from a major store but i think the banality is kind of what helps it because it's not like you you know there's there's a version of this episode you know, in like, I think season 10, like Bart, the mother, right. When he like kills and and that one, it's like, it's more to an extreme because he like literally kills a bird. And then, you know, it ends the episode ends with like lizards taking over the town or whatever, because it has to get wacky. But like, I think that episode is less effective because the banality isn't there. I think that there is something more devastating when it is something relatively small that like you, I think because you don't expect it to be something that will change your life, that makes it easier to recognize like what's actually going and what's actually going on. And so Marge sort of sees the reality of like what her child is. And that just immediately shifts her perspective on like what it means to be a parent essentially. Because Bart is her firstborn. Like this is going to be the first time she's gone through a kid growing up at all. So this is the first time she's sort of like, my child isn't a baby and can do a bad thing. And I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to grapple with that. Like she's not worried about how to punish him or even teach him or anything. It's just sort of like, how do I operate as a parent going forward now that I've like, you know, basically like seen the matrix, right? Like I've seen, (laughs) I've seen that, like that, like this is what happens. And that Bart is another human being, not just my little baby boy. Uh, can I also say if there's not an episode of The Simpsons called The Mom Tricks, then uh, uh, needs to be made for season 35. Sounds like a Treehouse of Horror segment. It does. It, I mean, yeah. appropriately, 25 years too late. Uh, but <laughs> um, up in the bathroom, Bart and Lisa are brushing their teeth, getting ready for bed. And Bart is relieved that Marge didn't yell at him. But Lisa warns that this might be a hurt that is deeper and longing, longer lasting. We get a great bit about... Uh, the the counter being easy to clean and everything absorbing into the rug in the bathroom, which is disgustingly uh, yeah, folied in this moment. Yeah, yeah. I also like Lisa's line. Like, I admit I haven't known mom, mom as long as you have. Like, <laughs> such a good line. It's such a good it's line. A, it's a very Lisa line because it's too smart for its own good. Because Lisa's like what two years younger than Bart? She's only two years younger. Bart, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, but it, it's one of those like well observed things that like Bart has known her two longer years because Bart is alive two longer years. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then like the fear that it instills of that it instills in Bart of like this like a forever type thing, like that suddenly implants this idea in his head of just sort of like, is it possible that this makes my mom stop loving me yeah. like permanently? Yeah. Which is a again, I think just as Marge is like recognizing that like Bart is growing up and like becoming a 
a real like complex flawed person um bart is suddenly recognizing that his mom might not just be this like mother figure that's always there and will love him forever no matter what like what if what if you could do something that is just too bad and a person can stop loving you because of that which is a You know, and that that's the kind of thing where it's sort of like you will go your entire life as a child not thinking about that. And the moment that that hits you like that, that can kind of fuck you up, that realization. Well, and I think particularly relevant for folks who are in the listening audience who are queer, like yeah. fear of coming out and that being something that could break a con- unconditional yep. love and suddenly make it a conditional love. I think I think probably fucked with all of us just a little bit. I think that's a, one of the reasons the episode I think really resonates with me a lot because I think it is about this relationship between a mother and son where they are in a position where they like are fundamentally not going to be on the like same side of things, right? Like Mar, you know, like Marge is is now. I mean, it's like it's a stretch, right? Because Mar- Bart like literally stole a video game. But I yeah. think that like with queerness, it is just sort of like you doing something that your parent might feel like is do is you doing something wrong, like is yeah. doing something immoral and wrong. And like my I feel like my relationship with my parents is just sort of like them having to grapple with the idea that they think that my life choices are literally wrong in the most like moral sense and having to find a way to be okay with that and still like love me in spite of that. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and it's like, and I don't agree with their perspective because I don't think it's wrong, but I have to recognize that that is their perspective. And that is, you know, that figuring out how to bridge that gap is where the challenge is. Yeah. 100%. I also wanted to give a, a quick nod to the fact that Lisa and Bart are having this conversation together. I grew up as an only child, so I had no sort of peer mm. to go through to sort of talk, Oh, mom's mad at me. What should I do? But I watched yeah. my cousins do it all the time and it was fascinating. So did you have this because you have siblings? Yeah, but we're really far apart. So my, yeah. my older sister is 10 years older. My little sister is seven years younger. So we were never going through stuff at no, the same time. You wouldn't have been. Yeah. And so I never really, you know, I was really close, especially with my little sister when we were really young, but you know, I, 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 I've never, I was never able to really confide in them in the same way that I think a lot of other siblings are often able to when you're closer in age. Yeah. Well, uh, we hear Marge tucking in Lisa, and this is where we get the second uh, verse of this song, which I just like to believe that she's got a new one every night. Uh, That feels like the kind of person Marge is. And Bart prepares to be tucked in, sarcastically saying that the tuck-in express is right on time. But when Marge comes to the door, she simply says goodnight and closes the door. My God, it's like brutal. And the thing is like, Bart is being sarcastic, but he still lowers the covers. He sure does get ready for that tuck. And I didn't notice that until the second watch. And I was like, oh shit. It's subtle. It's subtle, but it's like, it is clear, like, Bart, you know, Bart is doing your typical, especially the thing, especially the thing that boys do. Any kid does it, but especially with little boys, it is such a typical thing, just like you're because you're culturally trained to push back on maternalness so like he is outwardly always just being like i don't like this mushy mom stuff but you know he really loves it and he and it it deeply cares about getting tucked in at night you know that well and in a lot of ways i think that there's a read of this that marge is kind of being a bitch but he asked her and said that this was lame she recognized yeah growing up there's no malice to this right i think if when you first see this i think you can question like what's happening and exactly but the next scene very much clarifies what's happening in marge's head yes 
And I think that if you've watched this and you see malice in it, that probably says a lot more about you and your relationship <laughs> with your mom. Yeah. Don't be wrong. My first view, even having seen this, I was like, oh yeah, she's been a bitch. And I was like, nope, that's a, that's a David Don thing. That's not just a Marge Bart thing. <laughs> uh, he asked for this and she delivered. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. The next scene sort of spells it out because we're in Homer and Marge's bedroom and Homer spells out what he thinks Bart's punishment should be. But Marge's mind is on whether or not she mothers him too much and if he's slipping away and becoming a man. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's, you know, and I think the the way that it's positioned that like Homer's being taken care of the punishment, but as we've seen in this episode, He's not really. So that's why we he's end not, up in this. He's not intro- here either because he's doodling some nonsense. Right. But I think it's like, it's smart for the purposes of this episode to keep it a Marge and Bart thing because that's like, then you're not questioning like, well, why hasn't, why isn't Bart getting punished? It's because like Marge is consumed with this like existential realization that her child is growing up in is a flawed person and, and, and trying to figure out how to approach that going forward. So she's not worried about the punishment. Homer will deal with that. Homer isn't dealing with it. So Bart doesn't get punished, which is fine because now there's more room for Bart to like have to react to March, you know? Um, Yeah. And I mean, and I like that too, because I think it's sort of like Marge, I think is having a really normal sort of reaction to this where she's just sort of being, I think pushed a little bit too quickly into letting go of her child. But like every parent has to, at some point, she's just doing it. I think a little bit too early and like going like full speed into it because of being triggered by this event that opened her eyes to the possibility that Bart isn't her special little guy anymore. Right. Um, And, and, and it is so like, it's so sad to me. Like, you know, when she picks up the little clay, uh, handprint of Bart from when he was four as she literally says like somewhere along the way his hand slipped away from mine, from mine and it's just like you know for her it's like she just never she only ever saw him as as itty bitty Barty the entire yeah. time and now that now that she realizes that he's not anymore it's just like I guess I like it's almost like reluctant like well I guess I have to stop baby him I, I have to stop tucking him in I have to let him do his own thing because he just doesn't it seems like he doesn't, uh, that's what I'm supposed to do. And he doesn't want to be part of this anyway, it seems like. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good read. And I think so critical to the sort of development here, because we'll see it in the next scene in the, in the next morning, uh, the family's in the kitchen, Bart comes in, laments that Marge didn't wake him up and she still hands him his hot chocolate, but tells him that he's old enough to put his own marshmallow in. And when he does, it fails and the marshmallow absorbs <laughs> all the cocoa and he eats it with a fork and knife. Grandpa Simpson's there for who knows what reason. I would like to try a slice personally. Right, it seems looks interesting. I, I wish I could pull that off. I don't but know. Again, there's no malice to Marge. It's, it is truly her trying to navigate this. And you made a really good point earlier that with Bart as the firstborn, this is a muscle that's very new for Marge. So she yeah. doesn't have any experience here. So she's going to she's gonna make mistakes and fuck up a little bit and learn from it and course correct the way we all do when we're facing a new scenario. But it's not done out of malintent. It's done to serve what Bart wants and what Bart needs as mm-hmm. he grows up. Yeah, or at least what she thinks he does, right? Like, and I, yeah, that's, that's the struggle that she doesn't really yeah. know, which I think is what makes this episode so fascinating because then like bart obviously misreads all of this and then spins out because of it right but it's like but yeah but but yeah for her it's just sort of like i mean if he's growing up i guess this is this is this this is how this is how i can be helpful as a parent is by letting him be independent now and then maybe he'll start to make good choices going forward and he won't just like push back on me or anything 
Derek, as delicious as the marshmallow cutting uh, thing looks, I wanted to ask you, do you have any experiences of failing a simple task that your mother did deftly, which you felt like you had a handle on, but you clearly didn't when it failed? Oh, God, that's so specific. I don't know, really, because I feel like my mom and I were very similar in like, like I liked doing the things that she did. Like I was a kid who liked cooking and cleaning. So like it was pretty, pretty, pretty good. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I guess there's certain, certain recipes that like she's able to just do in a mom way that I've never been able to like emulate like she does. But um, yeah, I can't, I I wish I had a a good answer for that, but I really don't. It's okay. I would constantly call my mother my freshman year of college or maybe sophomore year of college because I had an apartment and ask her how long to boil an egg. Uh, oh, wow. Just, like, it was just knowledge that had never made its way into me for some reason. That's so funny. And uh, yeah. I did, for my first apartment, put uh, dishwashing, nope, Dawn, essentially, into the dishwasher rather oh, than no. a detergent, and it exploded. And that perhaps was, to me, the greatest thought of, like, wow, growing up sucks. This is hard. <laughs> wow. Oh, no. Money money stuff is what I struggle with that Ooh. I feel like my parents were better about. But that's not like a not – a, I wouldn't call that a simple task. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> That is that is definitely something my parents were very good about, like being, you know, frugal in the in the right ways and like in, you know, budgeting and saving. And I did not pick up any of those skills from them whatsoever. I love that. So though. Well, yeah. you gotta be a little different than your parents. That's the whole point of all this. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bart's gone to go seek help from the only other person we've met in this episode, Millhouse. Um, <laughs> he tells Millhouse, or he asks Millhouse if he's ever been worried about his mother not loving him. Oh, but Millhouse God. doesn't have any thoughts at all. Which so is funny. So it's such a dark thing for Bart to be going through. And then Millhouse's response is just inane. And it's to, to your reference, this is one of your favorite episodes. This is such a great realized scene because Millhouse is being the child that Millhouse is. And Bart is struggling with like dark thoughts. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I mean, they're, and they're like growing up at different times, right? Like, which is a natural thing. Like Bart is having these really like dark, but also just sort of like complex and kind of mature questions that you only get as you sort of like have more life experiences. And Millhouse is just like, just telling Bart about a movie that they both have already seen. Like, (laughs) I also love the end of that movie. Like the old lady told him it would happen. Like it's such a specific, like I've seen, I've seen whatever nineties movie you're talking about. Like I, I know that I've seen it. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's good. And I think that having Millhouse there as sort of that, as funny as the scene is for like the jokes, I think having him like Gavin is sort of a counterpoint to Bart of like, yeah. these are just children yeah. at like different stages that are being parented diff- in different ways. And like, no, Bart can't, Bart doesn't, the reason that the misunderstanding goes on for as long as it does is because Bart doesn't have anyone to like tell him like, no, your mother, your mom still loves you. Of course she right, still loves right. you. You know, and no, one, no one can tell him that. Yeah. Yeah. But like, but, no one can tell him that. And right. so Bart's stuck thinking that she doesn't love him. Well, uh, Bart and Milhouse get into a fight over a cup and ball, which has been, filling all of Milhouse's time and before being uh Milhouse calls again for his mother saying Bart's smoking but before getting kicked out Bart asks if he can hang out with Luann while she does mom stuff and I wondered Derek uh projecting Mm -hmm. onto a surrogate is not unusual especially for queer people and I wondered if there was anyone in your life that you treated like how Bart treats Luann like a a family friend 
Yeah, absolutely. There are people, especially in um, in college, I think that I kind of latched on to uh, because that was a point when, you know, I stopped being religious and, and was coming out and stuff like that and making my point to be independent from my mom. So I like did slip away from her at that point and then kind of adopted, you know, like there was like a, 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 a boss that I had for a college on campus job that I'm still like just friends with to this day. But at the time, even though like I realized like after that, like she actually wasn't like that much younger than I was, but just being someone in a position of authority for me was enough to have someone that I could like, like feel a maternal connection with, you know, um, that because it would be like, this is someone that does know me for who I am in, in this college environment. That's different. That is accepting me in the way that I feel like my parents back at home and aren't, you know, Derek, mine was also my campus boss for my student job. Aw, that's I awesome. That. And I, and the two eventually met because I, I got a little award my senior year and they were my two invited guests. And I thanked them both. Oh, that's uh, so fun which probably really now that I think about it, it was like a therapeutic moment for me, but yeah. uh, yeah, that's, oh, that's so cool. Yay. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, yeah. as Bark, uh, sorry, as Bart walks back up to the Simpsons home, he hears Marge laughing and rushes home to find oh. that they've all made a snowman family without him. It's mom. She's happy again. That line gets me every time. There's so many Bart lines in this because it's like so it it because it's so unlike how he normally is. Like having a Bart who is like pleading for his mother's love and like when he tells like Luann like like oh tell me I'm good like that kind of stuff. Like it's. It's like it's we've never seen him in the scenario and just like his sheer joy at thinking like it's 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 insightful because like what Bart is thinking is that it's not just that Marge doesn't love him anymore, but it's that her not loving him means that she is no longer happy. And like, even though, you know, we saw in the whole open that that whole like morning scene that like she is in good spirits, but like he is so attuned to this idea that like if she is not babying him like she always has then that means she doesn't love him and can't be happy like yeah. that's what he's stuck on like it's so yeah it's just uh i i i love how like subtle and like kind of complex all of this is yeah well they all go back inside and bart stalks away bumping into nelson who has stolen a spare wheelbarrow wheelbarrow tire from the try and save and this sort of sparks a, a, an idea for bart and he heads back to the try and save and steals his reserve but we the audience are not sure what mm. uh is there anything in your childhood that, that you sort of felt like resonated with the pain of of bart seeing his family sort of move on without him that he mm. was in sort of a different space yeah, not really from my childhood, more from my adulthood, okay. honestly, because I do think, yeah, because I think because we were all very tight as a kid, it really wasn't until like high school and then college yeah. when I, you know, I kind of had like just for my own health and like survival, like, you know, coming into my own queerness and stuff like that, like that I had to sort of move away from them and mm -hmm. then you know, they're very, it was very shortly after that. Once, once, once I sort of settled into being independent, then it started being like, oh, they're going on vacation just without me now, yeah. you know, yeah. like that kind of stuff. And that, that kind of stuff still, and, and it was hurtful at the time because it's just sort of like recognizing like it, because it was, it's, it's funny because it's sort of like, I don't know that I would have wanted to at the time, but it's still like seeing like, oh, they are living their lives without me now like it, it it almost feels like that is like a permanent sort of severing that like what wasn't really in existence before you know um 
like that kind of realization was was uh pretty hard to process i think at the time and i don't i don't actually think it's a stretch to read bart coming upon this very uniform family that's been built mm-hmm. that are almost idyllic versions of themselves mm-hmm. and then being told to use the slush underneath the car yep. to have his own representation i don't think it's a stretch to do a queer reading of that truly yeah. or not. <laughs> i th- i think there's a very heavy metaphor in that i mean that this is you know again the, the family doesn't mean anything by it it's just sort of like marge tells him point blank like i I thought you were too old for this. I didn't think you know you were you were literally not here, like doing your own thing in the neighborhood. So, um, you know, so it's like, but but for Bart, yeah, it's like this perfect representation of like how he feels that he doesn't fit in with his family anymore. Like they are the nuclear family, and he is he calls himself the black sheep, like in the scene, right? Like he just is sort of like I this is how they all view me and this is how I truly don't fit in. And yeah, I mean, that's, I totally feel the same way with my family. It's just like our relationship is good now, but I, but I always feel a little bit separated and different from them because they are the religious nuclear family. And I'm like the gay son that is not religious, you know? Yeah. And families all go through this in such different ways that I think for, for queer folks, maybe this isn't your experience, but I think it is, it, it wouldn't be unusual for a lot of people who listen to this who share one of those identities to feel. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, Bart's doing whatever Bart's doing because we're back in the Simpsons living room and Marge and Lisa are spraying fake snow onto a Christmas tree, which is making Lisa dizzy. Poor Lisa in this episode. She has chest pains. Uh, she gets dizzy. She doesn't get a present later. It's the worst Christmas ever for Lisa, truly. Like. <laughs> But Bart comes back and he's hiding something. Marge is distrustful of Bart and chases him down. He reveals that he got a replacement photograph taken, which fits neatly into the frame and pulls it into balance. I cry every time. Such a great. I mean, what's great is that it's very, very emotional, but it's punctured by Marge yelling, You can't hide from me in this house. I spend 23 hours a day. It's very funny. Are you hiding something? What do you have under your jacket? Nothing. Oh, Bart, not again. Give it to me. I told you, I don't have anything. You can't hide from me in this house, Bart. I spend 23 hours a day here. (laughs) Get him, Ma. There's no place left to run, Bart. Hand it over. Oh, Bart. I can't believe you did this. I wanted to surprise you for Christmas. Oh, sweetie, this is the best present a mother could get. I love you so much, my little bitty Barty. Mom. She's also like, I think it's good too. Like she is legitimately like, like first it's like, oh, Bart, not again. And then she's like legitimately angry at him. So it's like this, this, like her she was the she was kind of putting on a face for him in that like she was she probably was still mad at him for doing for the shoplifting it's just like she really did honestly feel like the best way to go about this was just to start being hands off with him and let him give him his space um but like obviously because it immediately bubbles up when she thinks he stole again she's like well fuck that's not working either so what am i supposed to do i literally don't know what to do you know um 
Yeah, and then the yeah, the, and, then, and then it's punctuated with just like the sweet moment that like the the receipt specifically says paid in full, stapled to the, the picture frame. I love that detail. It's sort of like audience, don't worry, we know exactly yeah. what's going on. Um, Bart probably made sure to staple that yeah. so Marge could see it as soon as she opened it up. But like you know, it, but it's also just it's the you know it is the perfect it is the perfect gift that is like so you know, that, that Marge is exactly what she needed. She just needed to see that her, her kid does like, just like Bart was afraid that Marge didn't love her. I think parents seeing their kids grow up are afraid that the kids are not going to love them. And it's like a, such a clear expression of love that this is exactly what she wanted for Christmas. All she wanted from the beginning of the episode was just a nice family photo this year. And Bart gives her exactly what she wanted and needed and needed. And in that moment, like all of those like fears and the worries about who he's going to be evaporates because it's sort of like none of that matters he is still my son he is still my little bitty barbie a uh, barbie he is still my little bitty barty barty he might be growing up now and he might be more complicated and he might have flaws and he might make bad choices but he is still fundamentally my son that i love and she just ultimately needed reassurance of that you know yeah 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 well, and I think there's also a revert, not a reversion to childhood, but there's something about receiving a present from your mother uh, and a holiday or a birthday that is childlike. And so I think that the move that Marge makes to say, Bart, you should open a present early is important in recognizing that he's not actually getting away from her. He still is yeah. her child and she still yeah. is his mother. Lisa, though, has to wait. And that is, um, God, poor Lisa. But as Bart unwraps the present, we see that it's a video game. He gets excited, but it's Lee Carvalho's putting challenge. He pretends to be excited and they embrace, which takes us out of the episode. It's so perfect because like for one, Bart isn't getting rewarded for like, you know, the the, the stealing that he did in the episode. But I think like it's also just it shows such a fundamental point of growth in that simple moment that like begin whole beginning of the episode, Bart was just so selfish because he just really wanted Bone Storm. Again, selfish in a very relatable kid way but ultimately sure. just like i don't care what anybody else thinks buy me bone storm or go to hell i don't care if it's 70 dollars. buy me bone storm and after going through this and, and and i think recognizing that his mom is a person with feelings that he doesn't want to hurt and that she really truly does love him even when he does a, does bad things seeing her like as a person essentially like it's like my you know my getting my video game that i wanted is not as important as my mom's happiness and i right. know that she did this because she loved me so i'm just going to make sure that she is happy and let her be happy and 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 that's all that's that's all that's needed and like that's kind of like that i feel like is the sort of compromise that a lot of us have to make with our parents right like I don't always agree with the type of stuff they might say politically. I don't agree with their religious beliefs. Yeah. I don't agree with a lot of way they go about life, but they also don't agree with a lot of things that I say and do and believe either. It's just, but I know that they love me and I love them too, in spite of all of that, because at their core, they are still the people that I, that I've loved since birth, you know? So like right. I, and, and that's never going to change, you know, um, like that, that is what unconditional love is, right? Like that, that is what makes love unconditional is when it's sort of like, no matter what happens, I know who you are at your core. And that, that is who I love regardless of any of the other stuff. And like, that's, I think so well represented in this episode. 
Yeah. And that's, that's really beautiful that it exists both for you and it exists here in the episode, because I think that is one of the themes that I was really interested in exploring when I started this series, which is sort mm-hmm. of where, where do we see that represented and how do we see it represented in the media that we consume when it comes to mothers and their children? And we really do get that here with the closing of the episode. It, it's not just a return to status quo. I mean, it is because it's a sitcom and you have to, but there is something really, really nice that has developed between the two of them that I think informs their love moving forward yeah absolutely we know at the end we sort of talk about what we saw as far as motherhood roles on display i think we spent a fair bit of time talking about the enforcement of order and rules we saw that in a couple of different ways spelled out with luann with gavin's mom with marge Uh, I think another role that we kind of saw with mothers was a mother's responsibility to let their child go. And I think we got a couple of glimpses into how that manifests with a parent still there, with a parent's absence, with them letting do things independently on their own. Derek, do you think there was anything that we're missing in this episode or our discussion that covers a little bit about how Marge filled the role of being a mother in this episode? I, um, no, I think, I think you pretty much covered it. I think, I think you distilled it very very well i just think like yeah i think it's it's funny because like marge doesn't have as much screen time as bart does in this episode but i think seeing marge through bart's eyes is so important and so beneficial and i do feel like there's very few episodes of the show that position her like that and i do think like as as much as her characterization often is just sort of like she's just kind of naive and just like pretty basic and like doesn't and, and you know stereotypical mother i think like there is also something so like beautiful and important about that being her core that it's just like i am just the mother of of the cartoon family of the simpsons that loves them in spite of all of the cartoony bullshit that happens yeah. Yeah. and like that itself you know, it's not particularly complex, but I think like that, I just, I love that so much. And I think lends to a thing that I love about Marge as a whole, that like, she doesn't have to be an extremely complex person to still be an interesting person in this world and still have, you know, she has her own little quirks and everything, but at her core, she is just a very loving, loving person in a family and world of absolute fucking weirdos. (laughs) You are, you are right on on that one. Well, then we're at the end, Derek, and it's time for us to ask our big question. Is Marge our mother? I'll let you go ahead and get us started. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. 100%. I think yeah. like she is, she's kind of uh, the mom that I think everybody wishes that you had, even if you have a good relationship with your mom. I see a lot of my mom in Marge, or I guess a lot of Marge in my mom, you know, my mom's a little more, I think, worldly and self-aware than Marge is. But like <laughs> in terms of like, you know, my mom also like doesn't really swear and is very corny and cheesy sometimes. And, you know, I, I like I I, I like a, and also I was just like really random weird quirks sometimes like I, you know, I, I definitely see that connection. But also just like Marge is just like there's a reason that, she, you know, that that when they created they created her to be you know kind of this archetypal sitcom mom um like it yeah she's just she, yeah she marge is our mother i don't even know what i'm saying anymore yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> i could sign on that and i would also offer that i think marge makes a great mom to come out to it's not an yeah. issue that bart or lisa at this point in time in lisa's life uh have to deal with but it we i think that we could see a lot of 
uh, positive representation in how Marge navigates other queer members of Springfield. I think that's always wonderful to see in a mother character because it's yeah. very assuring for children and teens who are struggling with, you know, will they be accepted to see someone like this in the world and know yeah. that they, they would be by Marge. Yeah. The episode with uh, Patty is a, is a conversation to have, um, Ooh, but yeah. but but I do think her kids coming out will be a different a different scenario. I think, yeah, um, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I washed that out of my brain, but yeah, that that's one of the more recent ones I have seen, and it was not. Uh, I guess that wasn't even that recent. That was like fifteen, almost twenty years ago. I think uh, actually about twenty years ago. So series, uh, the series yeah. is just, uh, yeah. so many. So also, seven fifty episodes is just uh, insane to think about. Yeah. Also, I said this was my favorite episode. I do have like a this pin that Laszlo made that <gasps> is like from the episode. It does not have Marge on it, which is I think my biggest like frustration with it. But it's just a bunch of like images and scenes from the episode oh, in this like gigantic, gorgeous. Yeah, wow, yeah, it's really well designed. Uh, yeah, like I said, I I absolutely fucking love this episode to death. Wow. Well, thanks so much to my guest and co-host and dear friend, Derek, for joining me to talk in depth about our favorite Marge Simpson from The Simpson. Derek, if folks wanted to challenge you to a game online of Lee Carvalho's putting challenge, where can they find you? Sure. I'm most active on Twitter at Derek B. Gale. You can find me on other places, either that name or Dare Bear, Mr. Dare Bear. Uh, you can also find my other podcasts that I do. Uh, my main one, my weekly one is Walloping Web Snappers, which is also with Glitterjaw, where Doug and I, uh, my co-host Doug and I, do deep dives into every Spider-Man cartoon ever made. And Doug and I are doing another podcast as well, uh, called Screonk. Um, and David wrote a nice little uh, plug for me that I just completely whipped right now because the transition that you gave me to say that I didn't say was, you know, what's in Springfield, a nuclear power plant, you know, it's nu nuclear radiation can accidentally awaken and empower. Uh, if we, if you don't, well, we'll tell you all about it on Screonk, our monthly movie marathon about Godzilla's history. So thank you for that advertisement copy that you wrote for me, David. That actually is pretty A plus, better than anything that I would have come up come up with. Um, so there you go. Uh, you can find Screonk on all your podcast apps as well. <laughs> all staggered. It's all staggered. It's perfect. I'm please, actually sending it to Doug immediately. Uh, <laughs> as for me, I've been your host, David Arnold, and you can find me online almost anywhere as Dmuma. That's D M U M A. And if you liked us talking about TV. You can join Derek and I as we talk about weird, genre-defying, and high-concept episodes of TV on Gimmicks, available at Gimmicks Pod on social media. And Gimmicks is no stranger to The Simpsons, covering the roller coaster episode, 22 short films about Springfield, with guest Tommy Prophet. <laughs> Are You My Mother is on social media everywhere at My Mother Pod, and you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to reach out with any comments, feedback, or if you're interested in joining us as a guest, you can email the podcast at areyoumymotherpod at gmail.com. See you next episode as we keep asking the question, are you my mother? I got my present early. I think you should get yours early, too. If I got a present early, then I should get a present early. I want a present. Lisa, you have to wait. Uh, okay. This is the worst Christmas ever.